Hey everyone, this is Dan with the Spiritual Underground Podcast uh, coming to you out here on a Wednesday evening from the wood shop or the studio at DTM Enterprises. Uh, I'm sure all y'all figured that out by now. Uh, some people still ask me what DTM is and that is Dan the Man. Uh, I had to come up with a, something for my little business and thing going and uh, that little three-letter acronym landed on me and I went with it. Uh, there's some joke out there about only 10% of the Dans are actually Dan the man, and I am in that 10%. Uh, <laughs> so uh, DTMWW.net, if you need any handyman service, any kind of woodworking, something like that around the Louisville metropolitan area, you can contact me. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, if you just find DTM Woodwork or, or uh, hell, go Dan Reeves, you'll find me and be able to find my number. Um, I do want to talk about uh, 12-Step Spiritual Recovery. That's a book that is written by James Christopher Cohn. It is a, uh updated, modern version of the 12 Steps with a lot of the tools. that are, A lot of the tools have gone into more detail in that volume. Uh, a lot of the what, what I think is tribal knowledge is we carry around those blue books and learn how to pass this from man to man. A lot of what we do, we use that as a guide. And my teacher taught me how to do it. And not everything, not all the tools that are in my tool belt are in that book. So uh, as I say, and sometimes, it, you know, I've heard this from another speaker. If somebody was, uh, if a doctor was operating on me, I hope he read a book newer than 1935. Uh, and that's the same thing here. It's no disrespect to that at all. But he brought some of that stuff forward. And the one thing he did with it was opened it up to anybody to use these tools, not just the traditional 12-step fellowship people. He's uh, written it to where everybody can look and see how this spiritual sickness, this spiritual malady has invaded them. And maybe they didn't find drugs or alcohol to soothe their, uh, their need. Um, but the 12 steps will, uh, I can guarantee you that if you practice these principles, no matter what you have, if you will work these steps and practice these principles in your life, I can guarantee you your life will get a whole lot better. And a man told me that once he said, uh, Dan, if you have this thing that I got, and if you work these 12 steps and practice these principles in your life, your life's going to get a whole lot better. And he said, he said, I can guarantee it. And I, get, I can guarantee death and taxes and all that stuff. And then he said, uh, I can guarantee you one more thing. If you've got this thing I got and you don't work these steps or practice these principles, your life's going to get a whole lot worse. And that man is Rick T., and uh, he is, I believe, the nephew, I think, of the guy sitting across the table from me. Uh, and that's, that is exactly how I came to meet my guest today, Dennis, uh, was through Rick. And, uh, and it come from that story that you all have heard before where I was uh, quaking and shaking after uh, my second AA meeting ever. And uh, pulled out my pamphlets and the phone numbers that were given to me in my first AA meeting the night before. And one of those guys was Jerry. And I called Jerry up, and they were sitting in a McDonald's up in Edwardsville or Georgetown, and uh, they had been at a Thursday night meeting that night, and uh, and I drove my rear end up there because, uh, and, and for certain that night, uh, uh, those guys answering the phone and being up at that McDonald's uh, kept me sober that day. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty certain that I was ready to drink after that meeting. And, uh, and, and I went up there, and, uh, and through that relationship, I uh, started going to that Thursday night meeting and, and met Dennis and I've sit in the coffee shop in a pizza hut and, uh, and uh, Dairy Queen a few times with Dennis too. And uh, yep. um, you, you remember those people, you know, and so you know, as you get some, 
you travel this path, these people, certain people have this impact on your life in recovery. And Dennis, you're one of those guys. Uh, you had an impact on me, and, and I can still remember, you know, some of the things you've said are things, and I probably have uh, borrowed some of the things you've said through my recovery to share with other people. And, uh, and I really appreciate that. And, you know, there was a day uh, where we met in a hospital, and I was going in. You were coming out, I believe. Yes. And, uh, and my mom was dying. Right. And I believe your wife was sick. Very sick. And, uh, and both of us were definitely with our guts in a twist. Uh, and we met at that door, and I really don't know what happened that day exactly. Uh, but I had some comfort, uh, not some, I had a great deal of comfort to the point that my eyes are misting up right now talking Praise about God. that moment of, uh, of a connection of two men meeting yep. coincidentally, if you believe yep. in those things. Uh, and, and my my feeling on that is that uh, you know higher power God put us right there in that spot to comfort each other for a moment, and and I remember that day and I made some kind of eye to eye contact with you where we weren't talking and that soul meets one another in a way that no way I can do that without being free of all the garbage that I used to carry. Yeah. And uh and, and I'll never forget <laughs> that. I don't know what happened that day exactly, yeah. but there was something. Isn't that the neatest thing? Happened that day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think we hugged each other and parted yep, ways, and I kind of stood with a little bit of a shell-shocked kind of feeling of uh, of uh, you know, those times that, that God comes into your life might be big, might be small. Uh, I, I'm thankful that I have the awareness to see those things today and, and, and be grateful for them and know where, I, where they come from. So uh, thank you for that day. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it was a great day. Yeah. So this, uh, I usually ask people to start off, uh, and I probably should have tipped you off. I've learned to tip people off. Of, we start out with what a guy or gal sobriety date is. Mine is August 3rd, 1991. Right. So it was just the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes 29 years. Yes. In a, in a few days. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm actually going to celebrate this Sunday night. I got Mickey from the Serenity House going to be my speaker. All right. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm going to be celebrating with, celebrating with a friend of mine, Ron G. Uh-huh. He'll he'll be celebrating two years, and I I got to experience him from the House of New Beginnings in Corden from the time he came in until oh, yeah. now, and watch him grow and yeah. and turn his life into service, and it's yeah. been uh, very gratifying. Yeah, what a blessing that is that we get yeah. to, you know, that, that ripple effect that this thing has where, yeah, I got well, but then I have mm-hmm. a way to help other people, and then you watch them help other people, and, you know, that's world-changing stuff. Uh, yeah, it's something you don't want to miss in this life. And Bill said that. Yep, he did. This is something you do not want to miss. That's right. And uh, I try to impose that on the people I work with, too, and it really is when you see, you know, i got a couple of generations of lineage in a short amount of time I've been sober. And uh, and look at that, and, and watching watching my guys help other people, and you know I take people down to the cabin for our fist steps. Mm-hmm. That's where I go. We go overnight and put a big insulation pillow yeah. in a safe That's spot. That's a great structure. It That's is a good really idea. Cool. Yeah, we have a little time to drive down there and chit chat, <laughs> get that out the way. <laughs> That's when super. I, when I get down there, I, I, I build a quick fire and usually like cook some steaks and some, and we have a, a good meal down there together. And then we pull the recliners out, and we sit down and do a fifth step, and I go to bed and uh, give them instructions on 6 and 7 that night. Yep. Most time people go, it's just a safe, sacred, really, since I've been doing recovery work down there, the energy there has changed because we built that thing drinking beer and all that. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> but I've changed the energy by bringing my recovery brothers and sisters uh, down there and uh, and 
and they usually go outside and do their seven step prayer out under the stars and the middle you know with that i think it is like an insulation pillow that god put around that place and uh when we built it 20 years ago and you know, yeah. had men's retreats we built it 20 years ago i had no idea what god was doing you know and uh yeah. he did yeah uh and it's given me this awesome place to go down there now we did a double date one once not too long ago one of my sponsees said hey my we're getting ready to do a fifth step too and i thought why don't we do it together because i have actually have two cabins we got the old a-frame cabin across the other side of the property that was where i grew up hunting mm-hmm. and we've refurbished it a while back so it's in pretty nice shape and uh so that we all had dinner out and picnic table in the backyard those two guys got in the kawasaki mule and drove over to the what we call the chalet that's the a-frame and they did their work over there and we did our work at the main cabin and uh man that's a blessing and that's something yeah and yeah i always say this little thing and i and i do say it funny like a joke to begin with but uh when, when i wake up the next morning uh you know the guy i go to, i have a, the gift of sleep so i go up there in about 37 seconds i'm asleep i promise them they can talk down there to god out loud they can you know don't worry about most it most times that, I, that way i, I just, can't hear it yeah. and i actually put some earbuds in too just to insulate so they feel comfortable yeah. they know that they can be vocal if they want to uh during that time and uh and i and and i every single time i wake up with a different guy and i went to sleep with <laughs> <laughs> but you see the lightness on them the oh next my. morning, you know. Yeah. And, and and I get to witness that transformation. That's another <laughs> gift of <laughs> doing the overnighter. Is most of the time after the fifth step, your your guy goes off, and you know, and you don't know when the next time you'll see him. It might be tomorrow. It might be a couple of days at a meeting or whatever. But you don't actually get to see. I, I get to witness that transformation of what that five, six, and seven does to somebody. Yep. And. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's just so cool. I can't wrap words around it. I'm glad to hear you word, use the word transformation rather than change. That's great. So many people on this program use the word change, and and it short changes what takes place. Yeah, yep, because it truly is. It's uh, transformation. Yep, unrecognizable. Where'd you grow up at? New Albany, about yeah, uh, yeah about uh, a mile down from the wood shop here oh, yeah. on Linwood Drive. I, oh, well, yeah, I, yeah <laughs> I, I was born in Louisville near Shelby Park in Orange Bay and Jackson. Uh-huh. And when I was about five years old, my dad kind of hit it rich. Before that, we were living less than paycheck to paycheck. I have two older sisters. And uh, we lived in a little bitty house right up back door was in Shelby Park. And uh, one day we're moving over here to a dead end street in New Albany in a house that's six times the size of the house that I was growing up in. Wow. And uh, Dad had started his own business, and mm. uh, and uh, it was flourishing. And so we came here. And so I went grade school to Mount Tabor, Hazelwood, New Albany High School, graduated in 1970. How about that? You know, I lived at the end of Brookwood and Linwood. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. For 11 years. I think yeah. my marriage the last house on the right when you run in, because it used to be a dead end, mm-hmm. and now it goes through. Right. And uh, my aunt and uncle lived in a house in the middle, a big ranch house that was in the right in the middle of the the, the street, pretty much. On I believe the, right the Johnsons side. lived across the street from you. Way like down, uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of in the dip. Yeah. And my brother has bought that house from my uh, aunt and uncle a few years I, ago, and they live in that house now. When, when they, so I got some connection when to that they, street, uh, too. Yeah, when they were going to open Linwood Drive up and build that subdivision, I have a picture of my mother in the New Albany Tribune and other mothers on that street standing there uh, with umbrellas blocking the bulldozers and not a, wanting to open Linwood Drive up. <laughs> it was the first protest I was ever at. I was about seven years old. <laughs> uh-huh. 
You know, I remember it being a dead end, too, because yeah. we would ride our bicycles, yeah. and my mom would yeah. go with us, and we would ride our bicycles from here and down the back way, and then we could still come through that dead right. end on a bicycle, no problem. We'd yeah. go over to my Aunt Janet and Uncle Ronnie's house and, yeah. and visit on bicycles. But, yeah, it was a great place to grow up. There were, at Linwood Drive, <coughs> uh, excuse me, had uh, five boys that were my age. Oh, cool. So we still are all good friends. Hmm. And... Uh, and uh, I'm I'm the only one who seems to have, have contact contracted this malady, hmm. uh, and so many times they look at me like I have three heads, and many times I do have three heads. <laughs> and so, uh, thank God that I have some friends like you who understand my three heads. <laughs> uh-huh, I get that. You know, that is another one of these blessings about this is he'll help you create the fellowship you crave. That's you know, right. And uh, and the fellowship that this fellowship really is, and the people I've met in it. Uh, unreal so uh tell me a little about your story and how you ended up uh well uh again right up the street from the the wood shop here is a church on the corner of silver and charlestown road the first church of god that is the church that my parents went to for over 55 years i got married in that church yeah and so uh we went there uh whenever the doors were open i was there for my mom and dad in choir practice uh wednesday night youth groups i mean i mean i was there i was in that environment more often than I wasn't yeah and when mom and dad would have parties they would have the choir over their Sunday school class over and they take the little metal folding chairs and set them up in their backyards and they had a little string of lights out back and they had a picnic table and they put a jug of lemonade and a jug of tea on the picnic table and uh, these people would come over and, and uh, as Don says in their flyer sack dresses yeah. uh, they'd come over dressed up like that with their hair up in a bun some of them and and uh, they would drive to Soto's and Plymouth's, uh, and uh, they'd tell jokes that really weren't all that funny, and they'd sing songs you couldn't dance to, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was okay. I mean, they, I love those people, and they loved me, and, and I had a lot of good friends there. But when we moved to New Albany, something again showed up my radar that never showed up my radar. The next door, the Johnsons lived. He worked for Ford, and he was... He was one of the ones that helped design the Mustang back in the early 60s. Oh, wow. And, uh, and he had parties. Uh, when mom and dad's people were folding up the chairs to go home, that's when people were pulling into his driveway to start their party. Right. Right? Yeah. And they had Mustangs and MGBs and uh, Corvettes, and, and they had things like that. Yeah. And they all looked like the Dick Van Dyke show. They all dressed like that, Mary yeah. Tyler Moore and all that. And uh, they had... On their picnic table, they had this big cardboard box that said Ertl's 92 on it. And they just seemed to have the best time over there, and they told some jokes that were pretty funny. (laughs) 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 They were, they were, I couldn't retell them, but they were pretty funny. (laughs) I learned to appreciate those jokes quite a bit. And so, uh, what happened in that church about the same time is there were a bunch of old women that had all of us kids down there at the same time. And it was a pretty enormous youth group, junior high and and senior high youth group back then it's a different culture than it is now so a lot of people went to church and had those you know their yep. and so they had us all down to the front of the church one sunday morning and they were tying blue ribbons around our wrist and they said you're never going to smoke cuss or drink and i said okay i mean i wasn't planning on it didn't know that many people did wasn't yeah. a big deal to me yeah. <laughs> but as time progressed and i got in the seventh grade and i went to my first makeout party on slate run road uh I left Mount Tabor School and was comfortable there. 
uh, I wasn't the biggest wig, but I wasn't the smallest peg in the thing yeah, either. Right. And when I got to junior high, I was lost. Hmm. Seventh grade, that. all these different schools, everybody was dressing with the Fruit Loops and the Madras shirts, with the, and they had the Bass Weegians and the Adler socks, and they had they were wearing old English cologne or Jade East, and 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 I didn't have anything. I mean, mom and dad bought everything at either Pennies or Sears, or sometimes Bacon's if they had some money, and. Uh, it wasn't in style, yeah. You know, it was, and so I began right away to notice that things weren't right. So I go to this makeout party, and there she was. Her name was Barbie. She lived <laughs> down in Glenwood. I was in love with her. She sat next to me in band. Uh, she didn't know it, you know, because I couldn't even talk to her. I didn't right. know. What, I didn't know how to address women, right. girls. Yeah. But there she was, and the guy sitting next to her, Myron, had his arm around her. I thought, man, how does he do that? And I looked, both of them had those brown bottles that were over in the Johnson's backyards. They had them between their legs. And I went upstairs thinking, you know, I'm just never going to fit in. This isn't gonna, Life's just not going to work out for me. And I went up there and I saw a cardboard box on that thing that said Fall City. And I remember thinking that night that perhaps the answer for me is going to come out of a cardboard box. And, I, I, and I, because it just seemed to come out for so many people out of that cardboard box. Right. So like it's working for you. Yeah. So and the Johnsons and everybody else. Now the problem I had with it is that that guy that ran that church talked in this behind this big podium up on a, sta- a stage like right. And he, he had a commanding voice. And here I had made this promise to never smoke, cuss, or drink. And if I broke that promise, he told me where I was going to go and what that place was like and how long I was going to stay there. And I couldn't. I couldn't have that. Yep. So. Here it's set up. So now I'm in high school. I don't feel apart. I don't feel anything going on. I, you know, I'm doing a few things to try to fit in. And so I'm starting this chameleon thing where a lot of us do, yep. where we fit in wherever we have to to survive. Right. It's not because we want to excel. We just want to survive. Right. And we don't know it at the time, but that's really all it is. It's just a survival technique. And so we were going by our later perpetual help. On our way to a party one night, Lou and I had left my house on Linwood Drive, cut through the woods, and we were going over to Roanoke to go to this party at Robbie's house. And I looked at Lou and I said, tonight's the night. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm going to have a beer tonight. Will you watch me? I could no longer not be a part of your life. Yeah. See, I'd seen you get the girl, get first string football and wear the right clothes, but I also seen you get expelled wreck your dad's cars. I knew something was going to happen, and I also knew enough that I wasn't going to be able to control before I even started what was going to happen. There was going to be something magical that would happen that would alter the course of my life, and I had to be willing to risk whatever came out of it to get the reward. Hmm. The reward was having my skin fit maybe for the first time, to not have any concerns, right? And so I'm willing to risk that. So I walk in that party that night, and there it sits. It's sitting right there on this old oak table. It had a metal strip around it. And it was on one of those uh, uh, wagon wheel chandeliers. Half the globes were missing. Some of the lights were out. It was three chains rather than four, so it was kind of dipping, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and this cardboard box sitting on there, it said Fall City. And they just poured the ice on the top of it. And the water was running down all over the floor through the box. So I walked over there like I'd seen Lou and Todd and all my friends do for years. And I grabbed that long neck out of there, and I came down on that metal ring around that table. Came down as hard as I could, just like I'd seen them do, and it worked. The lid came off, 
and started rotating away from the top of the thing, away from me, and across the room, and it was like in slow motion. It was like watching the old commercial for the Wild Water Sports, that guy coming up to yep. the ski ramp. And I remember, and then I remember this cold stuff running down my elbow and dripping off my elbow. That kind of makes you thirsty, don't it, Dan? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I had arrived. Right. But then I put that thing up to my list, and I couldn't do it because them old ladies in that blue ribbon had me by the throat. Hmm. I thought, what am I going to do? And I, the big book talks about moments of clarity. And I had no idea until I did some work in inventory and all that, and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of conversations that that was one of my moments of clarity. I had a view of the world as it was. Free from the constraints of the past. Nobody, I wasn't inhibited. I had a snapshot of my life, my future, and my past, and it was a dose of reality right in that moment. And there, was select, and there was a selection to make. And I couldn't do it. I went out behind the house. I was crying. Hmm. And I'm carrying that bottle. I think, I'm, really, I, I just, it didn't, I, it, suicide never entered my mind, but it was that way. Yeah. And I remember looking across the fields at a street light over McDonald Lane and thinking, what am I going to do? Hmm. And then I remembered my friend, the chameleon. So, I sloshed a little beer on me, and I practiced my walk like I saw you guys walk countless times. And I went in there and acted as if. Really? <laughs> and I got the girl for the first time that night in my life. How about that? I started dressing better. I became a part. I was accepted. My last three years of high school, I was running with the big dogs. I dated all the time. I had a job working for L. Thorne, making money, paid I, you know, I paid cash for my first car, GTO, 66 GTO. Wow. I mean, I everything was going my way. And and so I did that till I got to college. I went to Anderson College and, and it was it was it's Anderson University now, but back then it was Anderson College. It was a church college for the first church of God. Huh. And, of course, there's no smoke, smoking, cussing, or drinking on that campus. Yeah, right. So we'd ride over to Ball State over to Muncie to get a little relief every now and then, go to sorority parties or frat parties or something yeah. like that. And uh, those people up there at college are a lot smarter than my friends here in high school or else they cared a lot more. And they said, when are you going to drink that thing? And I started. Hmm. I had never smoked a cigarette in my life. Within two weeks, I was smoking two cartons a day. Or two cartons, two, car two packs a day. <laughs> and... and uh, uh, my life changed just like I was worried about. So this Way whole back. time you didn't really drink, you just kind of pretended yeah, you just if. saw the act and so you chameleed the end into yeah, what did. Yeah, and isn't it did. funny, when I came in at treatment, Don M. was one of the ones who met me at that Jeffersonville Token Club, and he said to me, we don't care what you think, feel, or believe. Act as if and the miracle will happen. Huh. And I did it then and it did, but right. I couldn't do it when I came into the rooms of AA. <laughs> you don't understand. My case is different, you know. Yeah. And I resisted it for quite some time. Yep, I totally get it. <laughs> and, uh, the other question there is to give the people grace when they come in and yeah. doing that today, yeah. you know, to yeah. go, yep, I know, man. Yeah. I know. So anyway, that's that's how it all started. And uh my first wife, uh, she was. In, I met her my first day of my freshman year during orientation. Oh, really? She was from Chicago. She was a Cherokee girl, and just absolutely drop dead gorgeous, way out of my league. <laughs> she also had graduated valedictorian from Thornton High School up there in South Holland, Illinois, and uh, way out of my league intellectually. Mm. I mean, just 
everything about her. She made her own clothes. She was a gourmet cook. Wow. Um, anything she did, right? What a catch. Yeah. And so I turned it up being whoever I could be for her. In whatever mood she was in, wherever she was, whatever modality she was in, whatever realm she was operating in, I fit right in. Right. Yep. Either I had led the way or I was her biggest support. Mm. One of the two. And uh, so she didn't smoke, cuss, or drink, right? So I keep a spare set of clothes in the trunk of my, I had a Plymouth Duster then. Mm-hmm. And I keep a spare set of clothes and all kinds of stuff to change my smell, to get the alcohol off my breath and the cigarette off me. Yep. So I could pick her up and have a date. I convinced her to marry me. And we were going to live our lives, and I was still going to drink with all my friends and smoke, and she was never going to know. Hmm. It was a busy time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that hiding that stuff is a lot of work. It is. It is. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I had, uh, if I had consequences, I didn't get them until I was about five and a half years into that marriage, when I no longer cared what she thought. Hmm. When the burden of carrying her approval was costing me more than my ability to get what I needed, she had to go. Mm. Yeah. Make it her fault, too. Right. Oh, I did. I took a job. I had a wonderful job. I was going to college at, at IUS when it was in Jeffersonville. Mm. I'd moved down here after doing two years at Anderson. I was doing uh, finishing up down here. And uh, I worked at Marley Company at uh, learning about welding and electricity at night over in Strawberry Lane. They made uh, cooling tires. And so I was going to do the trades because my father didn't know how to fix his own car. Mm. And I thought, well, I can do that and be better than him, and then I'll get his approval. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I was doing everything that I could. And then I thought, wow. So I bought my first house down here on Spring Street. Mm. As soon as you cross coming in from Clark County, mine's a second house on the right there. I really? bought it for Miss Janung. She was a school teacher, and I bought it for $12,000. And uh, I had an apartment upstairs, and I rented it for $100 a month. And uh, I was well on my way. I had a boat and a motorcycle. Uh, I had a K5 uh, Blazer when they were coming out, oh, 75. Nice. Yeah, and uh, she had a Pinto, a 73 Pinto. And <laughs> and uh, we were ever, the envy of everybody at church, the envy of everybody. We had money. We had career. We had education. We had, we had it all. Toys. But she just didn't give me enough fun. I found out that fun was what I was after. You know, chasing that happiness, that roller coaster of happiness rather than joy, which I found out much later in sobriety what joy was right. as compared to happiness. Yeah. No wonder I got the results I got. Yeah. I was chasing happiness. And so, uh, but that's many years to come. <laughs> so, were you in your early 20s, middle 20s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took a job with a shipping company out of Middle East, uh, the Johnsons that I told you about that lived next door to me that I grew up on, and he had left Ford and went to work for a uh, mercantile marine. It was a shipping company out of the Middle East. It was Pakistani-owned. Oh, really? And he said, Dennis, he says, with all your knowledge, he said, you'd make a great site administrator. Now, I didn't know what that was, but he told me how much I was going to make. Right, yeah. And I was a, I was the youngest president of the uh, Iron Workers Union in Louisville in their history. I was... At, at, at local 682 I got elected president and I was doing union stuff and I was just you know overachiever in every yeah, area right, right? Yep. yep searching for my happiness yeah and uh, I just dropped it all 
I dropped all the shops I was representing and everything. I was in the middle of negotiations with, with uh, uh, a boat manufacturer, aluminum cruisers. They were in our union. And I just left it. I said, I'm, I'm not coming back. I'm leaving. Huh. And I went to Bristol, Indiana to be trained as a site administrator at one of the factories up there for Skyline Mobile Homes. And uh, it was during the winter. So I left my wife down here. And I said, let's sell all our houses. By then, we had several houses and a couple of mobile homes that we had bought and were renting. Huh. And we sold all those. And she went up to Chicago to live with her mom. And I left there to go to the plant in Tampa to set up the plant. We bought a, a, a holdout. Nope, that happens all the time. All right. You know what happens? I, before the podcast, I blow all the wood dust off the chair. <laughs> and then I forget to turn it off. That's all right. It's, so, while people joke at me that, uh, yeah. that at some point the compressor Their, their compressor going to go on, so it yep. did. So anyway, I go down to Tampa, and, and she stayed at her mom's. And uh, that's when... Uh, I was at a bar, and we had a Sprint's account. I was in room 323. I'm going to remember that number the rest of my life because no matter what I did for the first month I was in Tampa, I'll just put that on 323. Oh. I had all kinds of people in the bar. It was right on the Courtney Campbell Causeway between uh, Clearwater and Tampa, mm-hmm. right there on the Tampa side. And uh, and so I, they said, you know, just charge it to your room. I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, I had a ride. The women were coming in, and I was buying them drinks and buying them meals. If they wanted a lobster, yeah, 323. Yeah. And uh, I ended up having to get some consequences for that later, but right then I didn't care. Right, yeah. And so uh, big time. she all of a sudden showed up and was wrecking my party. Hmm. Her mom said, you are married, aren't you? Why don't you go down here with your husband? And she came down, and I no longer hid my drinking or smoking. And bless her heart, she did everything she could. She went to a local church down there. One of my, remember I told you I had five guys that I grew up with? Yep. One of them became a minister, and he was a pastor of a church in Tampa. Wow. And so she went to him, and she was trying to keep her sanity. And 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 me, I'm running and doing this, and, and uh, I'm flying up to New York all the time for business, and I'm getting ready to go over to the Middle East, and I'll be mm. gone for six months. Whoa. And uh, doing what I'm going to do. We built a factory that built uh, knockdown housing. It was mm-hmm. like tongue and groove. Ha- looked like it's glorified double-wide mobile home. Yeah. But everything's tongue and groove, and it comes in a big crate. Yeah. And so easy I'm, to ship. Yeah, easy to and wreck. so I'm over there, and it's it's also uh, pretty cool that uh, I made a lot of friends in Tampa, right, and that worked at that factory. And where I'm going, uh, there's a old saying, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you might be in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's nothing over there. And there's penalties if they, you get caught with it that you really don't want to have, like missing arms and stuff. And so uh, they, I would get the shipping late, and, and they would put X's where my bottles were inside the units. And I would go and get my bottles out before the workers had a chance to start mm. setting them up. And that's how I maintained my disease in a zero-alcohol environment. Yeah. We'll find a way. <laughs> oh, yeah. That old thing about willpower and all that stuff, you know. Uh, alcoholics got some willpower, yeah. man. We will figure out a way to do things. So we, she decided that uh, she didn't want to have me anymore. And uh, she was a lab technician. She had graduated, got her bachelor's, and she was going to go back. And, uh, and uh, I'm not really sure what direction she finally ended up in. But we split up because she's a nice person we split up nicely oh yeah all right 
But in typical alcohol fashion, I went to Clearwater because back then these no-fault divorces were brand new. Hmm. And Clearwater in Pinellas County was the only county in the state of Florida that offered a no-fault divorce. Hmm. And the only thing that my wife had to do was not show up and I could get divorced. See, what had happened was I'd met this other girl in the bar that I was 323 in. She had come down from Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Hmm. Her name was Lynn. And she'd come down to visit her mom who lived in Plant City, Florida. And one of her friends said, let's go to this bar. You'll really like the people there. And I, that's where I was living. And so it was Christmas time. And I 323 her to death. And she fell in love with me. And, <laughs> and so anyway, we go to back then. That's when disco was in. I had my leisure suit. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we went to a place called Robicani's to go dancing. And she was drinking gin and tonic, tangerine and tonic. And she got absolutely... I mean, just wild. Plastered. Well, she was plastered, but her behavior was very aggressive, oh. very wild, uh, and seemed to be have no connection to the girl that I had met earlier in the evening. Right? Yeah. So I'm trying to get her back to her mom's in Plant City, uh, and plus I have to be to work at 4 in the morning, and now it's 2. Oof. Plant City is like 20 miles out of Tampa, so I have to go find this mobile home where her mom lives. And I'm pretty dazed up myself, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> so I throw her in my car. I was driving an El Camino at the time. And uh, and she's passed out now. And I drove all around Lake Sonona Sassa and looking for her mom's place, couldn't find it. So I said, well, I just got to gotta go back and change clothes anyway before I go to work. So I go back to the hotel. And I'm carrying her across the parking lot over my shoulder. And all of a sudden, she jumps up like she's been electric shocked. And she smashes me in the nose and lays me flat out, breaks my nose. Uh -oh. my side, blood's gushing out. And she takes off running for the beach. And I said, she's going to drown. You know, and I take off running after her, and she passes out right before she gets to the water. And I throw her over my shoulder. And I go in through the lobby, and I look like, it looks like a horror show. Yeah. My blood's running all over my shirt. Yeah, she's body passed over out your shirt. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I'd been there three weeks that time. And uh, they all knew me, and they just figured, well, another yeah. one of Dennis's nights. Yeah. And so I took her upstairs, and I ran cold water on her in the shower, and then I got ready, and she woke up enough that I called work, said I'm going to be about an hour late, and we found her mom's home. I walked her in. Neither one of us thought we were going to see each other again, you know. I go do what I got to do all day, and then they sent me to Orlando to drop some people off at the airport. Hmm. And I'm coming back. I said, I wonder how that girl's doing. And I went back, and... She's looking at me, and I said, you want to go out to eat? She said, yeah. I said, oh, let's take your whole family out to eat. Bring them on down to the motel. <laughs> and so we 323'd it, and her family, and her mom, and her mom's boyfriend, and her brothers, and her sisters. And, and uh, so she left to go back to Massachusetts, and she told her dad, he lived on Cape Cod, that I found the man I'm going to marry. Hmm. said, I broke his nose, and he's just like me. That's what she said. And sure enough, I mean, she was just like me. Huh. And uh, we ended up getting married, and we were married for 14 years and had four kids together. Wow. And uh, until uh, she found somebody she liked better than me. And that house was about a quarter mile from the wood shop over here on Summit Avenue. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and she still lives there. Really? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's uh, it was we had some grand adventures, Lynn and I. I quit the job uh, so I could be with Lynn. And we were in Tampa, and she brought she had this uh, Irish setter, 
And she still loved her Tanqueray and tonic, and sometimes it was Bombay and tonic, but she was a gin and tonic type girl. Yeah, like the good stuff. Yeah, and then she would sit around and drink a beer every now and then at a barbecue. But me, I, I always tell everybody that I'm Dennis, uh, addicted to here, try this. Uh, whatever uh-huh. you got, especially if it's free. I used to, every job I ever had, I uh, carried uh, a lower cost beer like Meister Brow or Old Milwaukee or something like that, and I'd drink it at room temperature. Oh, really? Because I could be generous. Hey, you want a beer? And they go, no, I'm not yeah. drinking that. And yeah. I say, well, suit yourself. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you could be a good guy no matter what. Yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> it worked for years. Yeah. Want yeah. a warm beer? Well, thank you. <laughs> and then, you know, and they'd offer me a cold beer, and then I'd drink it. You know, I didn't care. But it was a it was a good operating thing. So, anyway, we moved to, we moved to Cape Cod um, because I quit that job. And uh, so I could stay with her because one day she called me and she says, guess what? And I said, what? She says, "Uh, we're going to have a baby. I said, I thought you were on the pill. And she said, well, the Irish setter ate the pills. I said, well, that makes sense. I mean, if she ate, the dog ate the pills, you couldn't take them. Right. Right? And so I got this problem. I'm not married to her yet. And a matter of fact, my divorce is not final from the first wife yet. Uh Uh-oh. And so that's when I started this no-fault divorce. And I go over there and I file. And I go to my first wife and she agrees that this is, you know, I let her have everything. I mean, all I took, all I took was two items of furniture. I let her have everything so we could have this no-fault divorce. Mm. Right? Yeah. Because I was making money. I didn't need anything. You know, I could afford to be generous. Right? And so I go to court that day because now I'm having this big wedding over in Clearwater, on the, it looks like the Bell of Louisville. It's Clearwater Bell. Yeah. And I've got, you know, $125 shrimp tray, and I got all kind of, my parents and my sisters are coming down from Indiana, and all my five friends are coming down from wherever they are. And, and I rented this boat for the night to get married on, and then the Hilton, they're right from Clearwater to Sand Key. It's a rotating restaurant. I rented half of that for the reception. How about that? Yeah. And so I got this thing going on, and I, I go over to get my divorce on a Thursday, and we're getting married on a Friday. Yeah, had it all timed up, and uh, I go over to get my divorce, and the judge says I can't grant you your divorce because your wife said she agreed with the terms. And I said, "What's the problem?" I said, "You can't hear from her. It'll be another six weeks before you can get divorced." Well, I, the shrimp ain't gonna keep that long. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, typical alcoholic thinking. I go to the minister, this lifelong friend of mine that I told you about had a church right. in Tampa. Yeah. yeah. He agreed to do the ceremony. And then I had to tell him, you need to lie. This guy who had given his life to God, he needed to lie for me. Yeah, we do that. Yeah. And he felt so bad that what he did when we stood up there, he said, under the eyes of God, I name you husband and wife. He didn't say it by the authority you given me or anything mm-hmm. like that. And uh, and six weeks later, we, when we got our license, we went to his. And I had two other people that we barely knew be witnesses, and we got married. But... It's just an example of how I was like the center of the universe. I mean, it was I, I could tell story after story after story where you had to pay so I could look good. Yeah. You know? Yep. And, uh, but, yeah, it, we ended up, uh, uh, and I'm not saying we didn't have a lot of good times. We did. When we I left there and I moved to Cape Cod, and, uh, and uh, we lived on Cape Cod for eight and a half years right on the beach, and I had great jobs there, and, and uh, we raised a lot of our kids there, and then we moved back here in the mid-'80s uh, because of uh, the way the economy was going and the interest rates back then uh, 
to buy a house, it was like 17.5% interest. Mm. It was really bad. And uh, so I bought this house. I sold, we had two houses on Cape Cod that I bought before the prices went up. And so I had, in the mid-80s, I had like 120000 cash, which is a lot of money back in the yeah. 80s. And so I got this cat house over here that would have cost $2 million on Cape Cod. I got it for 75000 you know, with a 40, 20 by 40 pool, oh, eight wow. bedrooms, four bathrooms. Dang. You know, that way I could live accustomed to the way I should be living, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, I have arrived. Yeah. And then, or at least uh, I want to look like it. I started a pattern of taking, getting better jobs for less pay. Hmm. Uh, I needed to be able to drink all day. And some employers are not very understanding when yeah. it comes to that. Yeah. And so I would take a job and leave it right before I got found out. But if you looked in my work vehicle, there was always uh, a pickle bucket, used to, like a five-gallon yeah, bucket. Yeah, that's what we always called it. Yeah, Before yeah. there was five-gallon buckets, buckets, there, there were pickle, pickle buckets. Yeah, and there was a pickle bucket there full of a pickle bucket in my truck right yeah, now. Old Milwaukee. And it, was, and it would be full of Old Milwaukee float. And uh, back when the pool tabs used to come off, uh-huh. they only did that on beer. On soft drinks, they stayed. Yeah. And just the plea to get caught... I would keep stacks of pull tabs on the console of all my work vehicles, and my bosses would get in there and see that no one there from beer. Yeah. It's the only thing those come from. Yeah. And they just look at them just because I was a valued employee. I did my job. I went yeah. way and above. That's interesting about us, isn't it? Yeah. I look at that about, you know, you, I, yeah. I don't have I don't. a problem look at all of what I'm doing. I can't yeah. be what, I can't be an alcoholic because an alcoholic cannot pull off the stuff I'm pulling off. I think people yep. talk about it being workaholics when they're alcoholics. And uh, I know, uh, I think I know what that is. I, I took a job at the armor plant. I worked for ConAgra. And I was a uh, uh, anhydrous ammonia refrigeration engineer. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'd done HVAC and commercial refrigeration for years. And I worked for di- different mechanical contractors and all that. And I would leave them because they would, you know, they'd come up on a roof and they'd see a bunch of empty beers up there, you know, and, and they'd talk to me about it. That was, you know, how insulting that yeah, was. And yeah. I'd give them my two weeks' notice. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> so, after, all I've done you. For you, after all I've done for you and this one little thing, you know. And uh, so I'm working. Uh, they signed me to the armor plant over in Story Avenue because was, there was a lot of work to do there, refrigeration-wise. I mean, it was old. It needed a lot of updating and maintenance. Mm. And uh, so even in the August, I'm working in zero or minus five degree temperatures. Yeah. So I always had a whole bunch of coats and things like that on. And I had these apparatuses that just, I'd go in with 18, 20 beers under my coat. Uh-huh. And I'd just shed one whenever I needed one behind the cooler. This uh, That whole factory is full of empty old Milwaukee can. <laughs> <laughs> they, the guys that stay there to me. They just, they, they, I was their hero because I never got caught. Yeah. And I had a cousin that worked in uh, yeah. commercial refrigeration yeah. over Lobo and found yeah. out, you know, some of those old buildings down there are really just great big refrigerators. Yeah, that's right. They're big freezers. They're huge like freezers. Yeah. 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 And all that ammonia. And so that's, that's kind of what, uh, doing that job is kind of what started me on my recovery. Hmm. Um, it was just too easy to turn into a criminal. I turned into a Robin Hood. And so I couldn't leave work without at least five or six hams under there mm-hmm. because I had I had room now because my beers were gone. Right, yeah. And I'd come out and I'd give away ribs and hams to all the people over at uh, the restaurant and bar across the street. Yeah. 
and I'd stay over there six, eight hours. Uh, but I had forgot to clock out. And I'd go back over there eight hours later and clock out. Uh. So I was getting 16, 18 hours a day. I worked three and a half years and only took one Christmas off, one day. So I had double time, double time and a half all the time, mm. but I got it at Hall's Cafeteria. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get it in the in the shop, and uh, and so uh, as the disease progressed, I just justified it all because I'd go over there in four hours and do what the guy before me took him a week. I'd yeah. do it in four hours. Yeah, I can relate to that. You know, yeah. I always had the ability at my job to pull the rabbit out of the hat. Yeah. And, uh, and they liked me for that. Yeah. And, and I later on, like you said, you know, you see all this stuff in the rearview mirror, right? right? You don't see it while you're doing it, but you know, uh, I would, I would uh, snowball. You know, I would lay down on the job, do just like what you're talking. You know, or if I'm recovering from last night or whatever, mm -hmm. but right at the deadline, I could always pull it out, pull the rabbit out of the hat, and get it done. You yeah. Know? And then whenever they had emergency, I could do that kind of stuff too. But uh, yeah, I can relate to that. I remember I was working. Uh, I told you I lived on Cape Cod, and this is a prime example of how I would do that. Uh, I worked for Roby's Refrigeration in, in Hyannis. I lived about 17 miles away in Pocasset. But uh, I had quit a job that I had had at New Seabury, which I was over a whole community. I was the head of maintenance, for, and it was, it was really a great job. And I left uh, just because I got bored. Yeah. So I took a job as a re commercial refrigeration for Roby's because I got to be in that truck and I'd be in Boston, or I'd be down in Providence, Rhode Island, or out in P-Town. And uh, it was a great place to drive around and drink and, and get paid. Yeah. And so... We put something up there, so that no, I'm fine. I'm good. And so he had a... It was a pretty good-sized business. He had like 20, 25 trucks. It was pretty good-sized. Uh, he had an installation department and a service department. And it was... Uh, and I was in the service department, and I was one of the big dogs in the service department. And... Each day, we'd all meet there at 7 in the morning, and he'd give us our list of work for the day, and we'd get the parts we needed, because sometimes we would be working 100, 120 miles away from the shop, mm -hmm. okay? So you had to take everything with right, you. There right. wasn't any place right. you could yep. do it, right? And so <clears throat> every day, I'd take that pickle bucket. After I got all my parts, I'd take that pickle bucket. Now, here's what I'd do. I'd go to uh, Geno's in Mashpee in the Rotary at 4 o'clock in the morning. It was a restaurant that we used to service their refrigeration yeah. equipment. And so we got to be friends. And uh, he was a World War II vet, and he liked me, and we I liked him. And, and uh, I'd go to Geno's, and I'd develop this thing where I'd go in there and start helping do breakfast prep. I'd cook all of his bacon oh, and really? ham and all that. <laughs> and in, in return, I wouldn't charge him, but he would let me keep my hand going in his beer cooler the whole time. So at 4 in the morning, I'm drinking and getting ready to go to my job at 7 in Hyannis, you know, 8 miles away. So who knows how many beers I had before I got there. And uh, and then I'd get that pickle bucket up, and we had an ice machine in the loading dock, and I'd fill that pickle bucket up full of ice. So one day, Mr. Roby came out. I guess somebody had called him and said something about my drinking. Hmm. Right? And, and all the guys used to know. I mean, everybody knew what I was doing. Right. And it was like, talk about the elephant in the room. That was the elephant in the shop that nobody talked about. Yeah. So I get the bucket, and I'm walking out to my truck real slow to take off. I'm going to be in Yarmouth all day, about 20 miles away. And he 
he's holding on to the rail on the loading dock, and he's looking at me, and he's rocking back and forth. Excuse me. He says, Belcher. I said, yeah. He says, what's that bucket for? I said, it's to hold this ice. I keep walking. He says, what's that ice for? I said, it's to keep things cold. Belcher, what is that bucket for? I said, it's to keep the ice from going all over the floor of my truck. And I got in, and I put it in drive, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and he's just like this, rocket. Hmm. He never brought it up again. Huh. I just, it's, I don't know who I was being and how intimidating I was. But I cringe now because he was such a nice guy. He did favors for me and everybody that worked there. I mean, they were family for him. You know, but in the 80s, it was a different culture than we have now, treatment center-wise and all the rest of that. Right. And, and he was a, I mean, he drank all the time, but he didn't do it on the job. Right. You know, and he just, uh, he had a hard time wrapping his mind around this guy who does all this work for him, who does all these favors, who's a good mechanic, no callbacks, fixes what's there, but yet I got this thing he does. And I put people in that position. My mom, my dad. I don't care yeah, who yeah, I put in that yeah, position. Yeah, it's really tough to talk, you know, try to tell yeah. an alcoholic what, that something's going on. Yeah. The, the... My, my, my second wife, uh, Lynn, the one I told you about, she really tried. She was still drinking and doing her thing, and, I, and she still carries on today. Oh, really? Yeah. But uh, she's a school teacher, and she just retired. And, and uh, she and her husband are in love, and they do fine. You know? Yeah. But I uh, I put her through it. Yeah. You know? But I would have told you that I drank because of her. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you had the wife I had. You yeah, that's right. Too. Yeah. I mean, can't you see? They're in this big eight-bedroom, four-bathroom house with a 20-by-40 in-ground pool. They're driving this, they go here, they go there, they're going vacations all over the place. I don't go with them because I'm working. Right. But they go, you know, they go to Cape Cod, spend three months every summer. Wow. You know, up at her, they'll stay at her dad's yeah, house up right. there, her mom's house now. And and uh, I pay for all their vacations, I pay for their clothes, they, they're all Keep them happy. Yeah. Just so I could drink. Yeah. Never got the cost. Never got it. So, um, February, they had sent me out to Utah, and there was an explosion out there. I was sent out there to save the day. I wore like a spacesuit, and uh, I'm sent out there to save the day. There's an ammonia leak, and uh, and it they have these big compressors in these engine rooms and these uh, process kill plants and things like that. Um, they're, most of them are 750 ton to 1100 ton centrifugal compressors. They're yeah. not reciprocating, they're centrifugals. And uh, so anyway, they had a problem out there and they knocked out about six, seven city blocks and they flew me out there in the middle of the night. And, and I, I patched the leak. I'm working in my little spacesuit and I weld some stuff, some Schedule 80 pipe up, and yeah. evacuate it all and start introducing anhydrous back into the system. And I'm getting ready to bump a compressor. You'd bump it. Bump, 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 because you couldn't just take, turn it on. It'd draw down lights all over the city. So you had to get it moving. Oh. And then you would add product to it through valves to put a load on it. You'd start it even without a load. It was They were big. They were 4,400-volt 4, big electric motors. Wow. And um, so I'm starting the engine room. 
and it's usually about a full day process to get a good size engine room going and doing what it's supposed to do. And so I'm starting. It's about two in the morning. And the local maintenance men have coming back with their Scott pack on and they're just hosing down the area and they're playing around. They've been over to the club across the street and they're pretty daisied up. Yeah. And uh, next thing I know, I'm in, over here in the panel. And next thing I know is there's a bright light and a loud noise and I'm flying through the air. They had pushed me into this panel and it went in my left hand right there and missed my heart and came out my right knee because it was grounded. The power. And blew it out and ripped my suit apart, set it on fire, wow. and 4,400 volts. It threw me. Yeah. And uh, and I went up against this wall. They said about 20 feet to 30 feet up the wall was best they could remember that I hit this wall and then fell down into the anhydrous on the floor. So then the anhydrous infiltrated my suit and killed me. It wasn't the electric, it was, a, it was the anhydrous. Yeah, and so they worked on me a long time, brought me back, and then I had to come to Louisville to, used to be Methodist Hospital, was a big pulmonary hospital back then. And uh, and so that started uh, the consequences. That was the beginning of the consequences. Um, during that time when I'm trying to heal and get my job back, that's when my wife found somebody she liked better than me. Mm. And uh, they started their life together. Uh, I left and went over to my mom and dad's house on Linwood Drive. And I told mom, I said, Lynn and I are having a little trouble. Can I stay over here two or three weeks until we get it worked out? And she goes, sure. And I, st- I was there three and a half years. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what all good middle-aged men do. They go yeah, home to mom, go right? Go home to mom. And so I did. And uh, here's what my last seven months, and I've described it. My last seven months out there was like this. This is really what it was like. I I was trying to go back to work, but the doctor said you're done. So I went to work for a mechanical contractor over in Louisville as uh, like their assistant uh, service supervisor. And they gave me a, a van, but I really didn't do any work. I'd go out and use my knowledge to help other people solve problems. They'd send me out on job sites, right? Yeah. And, uh, or I'd manage the workload if Danny couldn't be there the service manager I would take over for him and and so it was a hot, uh, company based out of Cincinnati they just had an office over here on Papa Lover Road mm. and uh, so again I'm still drinking pretty good I, I stopped now at Halls the cafeteria right across from uh, Story Avenue and I'd help them with their breakfast prep and stick my hand in their cooler yeah. and then I'd be at the office at 8 o'clock pretty daisied up i'd send this guy off this guy off you do this you do that and i tell the secretary i gotta go put out this fire this power and i go down on third street to the package store get me a 12 pack old milwaukee jam it in that pickle barrel and drive around for three four hours and i'd be back there at lunch and i'd check on everybody and send them out for their work and uh, i'm heartbroken you know my four kids are over in the house that i paid for with that and they're living with that man and yep. all that's going on right that's a pity party i'm in yeah. the middle of and uh, and uh, they seemed to be like him okay, and that was killing me. Mm. And, uh, I mean, where's their loyalty, after all, you know? And uh, and so uh, we get back there at lunch, and, I'd like I said, I'd send them all out for the afternoon, and I'd tell my secretary, i got to go check on this or check on that. And I'd drive over here to New Albany over on Clarner Lane. My friend Robbie lived there now on Clarner Lane, the one that I told you about, I went to his house. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, he worked at Fire King, and he got off early. 
And so I would go to his house. And he had two refrigerators in his garage. One was full of my beer and one was full of his. <laughs> and I'd pull up there and he'd be there and I'd look through the windows as I was coming to his kitchen. And he sat in this old oak table. It was kind of warped, had a metal ring around it. Underneath a wagon wheel chandelier that had two or three or four globes missing, <laughs> hanging by three chains, it was climbing off to the side. <laughs> same table, same yeah, chandelier. Yeah. And he had a son that his wife went off and found somebody else. Yeah. And uh, I'm 39 now. Okay. And I'd go there and we'd drink a little bit and talk. He'd talk about, is there any hope of you getting back with me? No, she's happy with the guy she's got. You know? I said, we haven't filed for anything yet, but it's coming. You know? And uh, I said, you know, all we do is work and drink, Rob. we got to do something more for these kids. I said, your son and my four kids, we got to do something for them. And we plan trips to Disney World in the spring. We're going to take the kids to Disney World when they get out on spring break. And we're going to do this. And we make all these plans. And then I'd look and say, oh, it's 7 o'clock. i got to go home. Because I was in my paper hanging uh, karaoke stage then. I'd write you a check that was worthless. And you'd take it because you knew I'd make it right on Friday. But I, I was always living deficit then. Right, yeah. You know? I didn't, I didn't leave anybody hanging. But I certainly, everybody knew that my checks were no good until Friday. And that is give you the cash and you'd give me the check. Yeah. Right? And every now and then i say, I need you to hold that check one more week. One more week. And then it got to be two more weeks. And things were getting out of hand. So I'd leave his house about 7 o'clock, and I'd go to my mom and dad's house and put on my karaoke clothes, and I'd go down to Russ's Tavern on Main Street, yeah. and I'd sing those songs, those sad songs like Take These Chains and Please Relate Me, and I Did It My Way. And, yeah. and you guys would tell me, oh, she was dirty, man, the way she did you. You all pat me on the back, and then about 2 o'clock in the morning, Russ would go, hey, everybody out of here, got to go to church, got to play golf. I'd go home. About 4, 3.30, my alarm would go off. Didn't have to be to work to 8 o'clock. And I'd reach over and get that quarter, half full beer can left over from the night before. Yeah, the one left on the yeah. nightstand. Yeah, and I'd just take a big pull off of it and just shudder. And then I'd go and try to brush my teeth, and I'd get real close sometimes before I started gagging with that toothbrush. Sometimes I'd make it almost to my teeth. Yeah, that's a weird thing. About yeah, <laughs> and then all of a sudden just start gagging. Yeah, not be able to yeah. brush your teeth because they yeah. gag you. yeah. And then I'd go try to find a pair of work clothes that weren't standing up by themselves. If they weren't standing up, I'd wear them that day. And, uh, and then I'd go to my place. I'd go to Hall's and cook. Cook, drink beer. And then I'd send the guys off and get a 12-pack and drive around to noon. And I'd put out some fires, drive over to Robbie's. And we'd talk about how we were going to take care of the kids. And I did that over, over and over and over. It's like a Groundhog and Day over movie and it's over. just that cycle. Yeah. And then one day, I didn't know my mom. I knew my mom had been going to this thing called Al-Anon. Uh, but I thought she was going for my niece and a couple of her brothers and a couple of her sisters because they really did have problems. Yeah. And, um, you knew they had a problem. Oh, my gosh. What a track record they had. And, you know, I they were in prison. And, I could point yeah, the finger yeah, at yeah, all they, the people they, that had the problem. stabbed and shot. And, you know, people's whole toolboxes were missing because they came to visit. And, I mean, you know, all kinds of stuff. You know, nothing like that ever happened around me. So I was too young, good-looking, and rich to be an alcoholic, like Mick says. You know, I, I, uh, I, uh, no, no, I didn't have, no. And so, anyway, she she'd been going to Al-Anon, and and for eight weeks they'd been going over this place over in Louisville called the Morton Center, 
uh, one of my sisters from Ohio, she's a school teacher. She'd driven down here every Thursday night after she got out of school, 170 miles, to go to a class on how to have an intervention. Hmm. I mean, pretty crafty. I had no idea what was going on, yeah. right? Yeah. And they went for eight weeks. My dad, my mom, and one of my sisters. My other sister, who was my enabler, uh, she had a lot of money, Joanne. Uh, she wouldn't go. She wanted no part of it. Hmm. You know, even though she knew I was a liar and a thief, she just didn't want any part of it. Right. Huh. So, one Friday, I left Robbie's, and they said, hey, let's go out to eat. And my parents were country people. They grew up in the country, and they're good people, and they, they eat early. And I thought, well, this is going to mess up my karaoke too bad. I'm not hungry, of course, but I'll go with them because my sister wants to go. Yeah. She's down from Ohio. So they put me in the back seat with my sister, and they started driving, and, and they started going over the bridge over to Kentucky. And I thought, well, that's not right. I mean, if you're from New Albany, you eat in Clarksville, right? You <laughs> I said, this, yeah. you know, intelligence is not our problem. I mean, we we, we know when yep. something's up. Right. And uh, and so they, I'm sitting there wondering, and then they take the Eastern Parkway exit, and they pull up to the place that used to be the original Shriners Hospital there. Uh, it looks like a Swiss chalet. And the Morton Center was there. Hmm. And they do bad things to people like us in there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd heard stories. <laughs> it's and so I didn't know what they did in there, but I knew it wasn't good. Yeah, I and uh, no part of it. And so they pull in there, and my mom turned around and said, "There's a guy up here named John that wants to talk to you about a disease of alcohol, about alcoholism. Hmm. I need you to go up with me and talk to John." Everything in me wanted to bolt out of that car, and I to this day don't know where it come from. But I said, "Okay, mom." Hmm. And I walked up there, and they started having this thing, and he had schooled them to keep their mouth shut until he pointed at them. And he was talking about my job and this and that and everything. He had my complete work history. He told me things that I didn't think they had anything. Like my Uncle Wiley died, right? He, he got sober down in West Palm. He was my mom's baby brother. There was 12 in her family, and he was, he was the youngest. And uh, he was one of the terrors. And he got sober and had seven years sobriety when he died. And he mm. helped a lot of people down in West Palm. People still talk about him down there. Wow. And so my sister Joanne said, would you take this down for the funeral? Well, it was a bunch of money. Me and that never made it to Jonesboro, right. Arkansas, right? Yeah. <laughs> but nobody ever called me on it, so I just figured they never knew. And so here they are talking about it. Yeah, bring up all and, these and things all you thought the, you got away with. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was kind of getting mad because some of them I worked pretty hard to keep hidden. Yeah. And I, and I thought, man. And they'd already worked it out with my boss. Everybody knew. They told me that my boss knew, and he'd already given me a month off wow. to go to this treatment center in, in Zeno, Ohio, called Green Hall. My insurance was going to cover it 100%. They'd worked out babysitters for the, the times that I was supposed to have my kids. Uh, and It uh, paved your road. They, they had it all worked. That's what they eight weeks was for. I had nothing, and I stuck my ground. I said, I have to go tell my boss I'll go Monday. This was a Friday. I said, I'll go to my boss and talk to him person to person. I had to have some skin in the game somewhere. I had to have some control, right? Some semblance of this is my idea. And they were nervous about it, but they agreed to it. And I went right over here on Longmeadow Drive the morning we left. We were going to leave at noon. 
and I went over to my mother-in-law's because she understood me. Hmm. She used to tell everybody, everybody needs a dentist because I would fix everything for her, take, do this. Right. I catered to that woman. Yeah. And I did love her. And even during, during the divorce, she made sure that I got photographs of the kids and things like that. She was good to me. And, and she loved her daughter. It wasn't that. She just loved us both. Yeah. And so I go there and I drink my last six tall boy beers of Budweiser with her before I go to treatment. Yeah. And I ride yeah, in the so back Friday's seat. Friday's not a good day to go to treatment. You yeah. go to treatment on Monday. That's what I did. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, and so my mom and dad drove me up there and dropped me off. And I thought, wow. And they take me in the back of this room and ask me a bunch of silly questions. Have you had anything to drink today? And, of course, I said no. Yeah. And uh, and they put me in my pajamas, and they gave me this thing called a V40. And I had no idea what Valium was. I'd heard about it huh. because I didn't do that many drugs. I did some lines of cocaine every now and then, smoked some pot, uh, did some acid when I was in high you know, after high school and early college. Yeah. Uh, none of it ever. I just I liked my beer. I like to drink. Yeah, in yep. whiskey when I was out, beer when I was home, hmm. and and so uh, they gave me this Valium Forty, and the next morning I'm pretty goofy. I slept all night. <laughs> <laughs> next morning they come and get me in my pajamas and they take me down to this men's encounter group or something. It's early. It's like seven thirty. And they gave me this fake coffee that had no caffeine in it and, mm. and really had no properties whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> it was just the same water. color. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> and it was hot. And, uh, and so they started talking to this guy, Dave, the other people in the group, about, well, yeah, you're an alcoholic because of this or that and the other thing. And he, just, and he said, no, I said, it just it was bad luck. I pulled out of there and the cop just happened to be there. I just wanted to cash my check. And he's going and they're arguing and arguing and arguing and they're screaming at him. And then all of a sudden he put his hands up in the air and he held his head and he says, you're right. I'm Dave and I'm an alcoholic. And man, they started hugging on him and loving on him. And I'm like, what in the world's going on here? You know? And so I went through the day eating this fake jello and no sugar in it. Just in a fo real fog. Uh, I'd never, and I thought, man, this sobriety thing's going to be all right if I'm like this all the time. Hmm. You know, if this is the way you do it, stay on value. You know, I can do this. You know, call them pill farm. And so at night, they take me up to my room. I, don't, I have no idea it's dark. I have no idea what time it is because there's no clocks anyplace. And they put down this questionnaire. You said, you need to fill this out. You're going to need it in the morning. And it's those questions they had been asking Dave. <laughs> and so I thought, whoa. Oh, no. like <laughs> so I, said, we're pretty smart. Oh, yeah. yeah so I, Dave had some really good stuff. I mean, I, I'm still not convinced I got a problem, right? And I, no way am I in their league. I mean, I didn't knock over any liquor stores or shoot anybody. Yeah. You know, I've got no hard time behind the walls. You know, I got, I'm never going to fit in here. And that began to take over. I'm never going to get along with you. They're never going to accept me. Yeah. So I started putting down stuff I ain't even done. Uh, oh, my gosh. I filled out a novel. It was a great work of fiction. I'll give you a story. <laughs> so the next morning, they got that questionnaire, and I'm resisting what I thought was appropriate amount. I saw Dave. You know, I learned from Dave. Yeah. And they're, you're an alcoholic because this. No, no, no. It's just bad luck. No, no, you don't understand. And they started to give up. I was pretty good at it. Well, I couldn't have them feel bad about themselves. 
So all of a sudden, I just said, you're right. I'm Dennis and I'm an alcoholic. Man, they started loving on me, and they went <laughs> to the next guy, and they left me alone. Mm. So then I started doing this communion thing and treatment. I started acting as if, doing the stuff, talking the talk and walking yeah. the walk, all that stuff. I probably asked two genuine questions the whole 30 days I was there. The rest of it was maneuvering. Yeah. Okay? Or maintaining. And I, even at two weeks, maybe three, it was a two-floor treatment center. Second floor of the rooms were up on top in the cafeteria and meeting rooms were on the first floor. So I passed the second floor nurse's station. And I already started my campaign to lose my beer belly. So at night, I would walk that circle of the second floor 20, 30 times. Oh. And I was losing a lot of weight because the food was horrible. So yeah. it was no problem. And I wasn't putting all those calories from beer in me, right. so yeah. it was falling off. And uh, even got me a girlfriend in there. You know? <laughs> she, was a, she was a crack addict from uh, Springfield, Ohio. We would have made a lovely pair if it would have stuck. Right. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. So I remember going by that nurse's station, and I remember this one girl saying, Betty, there's one I was going to make it. I said, well, I had them. I got them. It's a cakewalk from here the rest of the time I'm here. And it was. So my sister from Dayton came and picked me up to bring me back here. And we're coming back I-71, and something had happened there the day before. Like in most treatment centers or halfway houses, when you complete a program, they pass something around and everybody tells you right. good stuff. Yeah. Well, Dave, the one, he was there a day ahead of me, right? And he had no place to live, he and his wife and his two children. He'd burn it to the ground, and they were in a homeless shelter. Oh, wow. So there were a lot of us that had money, still had money. So we collect, made this big collection because one of the other guys, his mom's, was a realtor and, got, and could get an apartment for him and mm. get him set up and put up full of food. So we gave all this money for that, right? So we give it to Dave when he gets his well-wishing coin from the treatment center, and he's supposed to come back the next day for me. Well, the next day he don't come back. Hmm. And it's almost time for me to have my ceremony. And all of a sudden, they bring the new guy in. You know how the new guy's shaking and drooling and all that, and he's going to volume? They brought him in, and it was Dave. Oh, he wow. looked bad. One I said, day. Dave, what happened? He had taken all that money and went to the dope man, didn't go home to his kids and wife. They're still in the, sh in the shelter. Burned it to the ground. And now he's day. back again wow. one day later. And I went bonkers, screaming at him, yelling at him, took a couple swings at him. They had to take me over to the hospital side and restrain me. So the next day, I just went out of there. I don't want to hear anything anybody's got to say. Yeah. And so it's, we're it's coming back. Bullshit. Yeah. So we're coming back down I-71 towards Louisville. My sister's driving, and she's telling me that she had just found out that her husband of 20-some-odd years was having an affair with his secretary. He was an attorney. And she was hurting real bad. I'll bet. I didn't hear any of it. Me, me, me. Me, 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 me. Every time we watched past a mile marker, it was like Chinese water torture. Yeah. I'm coming back here. It, all of a sudden it hit me. I discovered that I wanted what you guys had, but I hadn't paid attention in class. So I didn't know how to go to any length to get it. Yeah. So we crossed the Kennedy Bridge, and I was just beside myself. Because I knew that as soon as I got out of that car, it was going to happen. And I remember your all's bumper stickers because I'd go to Frank's Steakhouse to work on their kitchen equipment every now and then. And there was this little white building behind McDonald's that had these bumper stickers on it, live and let live one day at a time. I didn't know what a token club was, but I knew you were in there because uh -huh. I'd seen your bumper stickers. 
So I said, take this exit, take this exit. And I grabbed the wheel, and my sister's going, what, what, what? She pulls me down there, and I jump out of the car and said, tell Mom and Dad I'll see them later. And I went running in there. Little did I know what was going to happen next. I had no plan. And I went running in there. A guy named Bill was back there flipping burgers and making french fries for the lunchtime meeting, which I didn't know they had. I didn't know they had anything in there. I just knew the bumper stickers were there. I said, man, I just come 175 miles from a treatment center, and I need a meeting. He came out. He put down a towel. He came out from behind the counter. He put his hand out, and he says, my name's Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Hmm. He says, you're in the right place. He said, you're never going to have to drink again unless you insist upon it. And you're never going to have to be alone again unless you just want to be. And I love you. Then Larry Briscoe got up from the thing. Larry came over and said, hey, I'm Larry. I'm an alcoholic. You're in the right place. You're never going to have to drink again unless you insist upon it. And you're never going to be alone again unless you just want to be. And I love you. And I thought, man, they rehearsed this crap. Right? And I went in and sat down and watched them play euchre. Drank tons of coffee. Went to three meetings. Got somebody to give me a ride to New Albany on Linwood Drive to drop me off at my mom and dad's house. And when I walked in about 11 o'clock, I can only imagine what my mom and dad were going through. They told me later, but it was awful for them. They thought, well, we did all that, and he's out. Yeah. And they were going to tell me that, that night that I could not stay there. Mm. They were waiting for me to come home to tell me, just take your stuff and go. You know, her baby boy, she was going to have to do that too. Yeah. And, uh, but instead, I came in sober, and on top of her piano was one of those camel medallions where it says a camel drops to his knees twice a day and can go a long way between drinks. Yeah. And underneath that, it said Dave, and it was a Clarksville phone number. And I called that number, and it was Dave the Fishman. And uh, Al-Anon, his wife, had made, made sure that was there for me. Huh. He said, that? you meet me tomorrow morning, and I'm going to take you to the Token Three Club. You meet me at the Jeff Token Club. And I met him there, and he took me over to, to the DuPont Square to the Token Three when it was yeah. there. Yeah. And he took me to my first outside discussion meeting. And they were talking about, I don't know what they were talking about. I really couldn't tell you one word they said. Right. And then he put me in his car and he drove me all around Seneca and Cherokee Park. And he was talking about Dr. Bill, Uncle Bob, the Blue Book, 12 Steps, Little Red Wagon, yak, 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 yak. I don't, you know, I don't, I, but I remember thinking, don't stop talking, Dave. I don't know what you're saying, but please don't stop talking. Because I could actually tear. This, this old drunk cared about me. The fish man got one of his speaker tapes someplace close by. Yeah, and we had plans because he was going to retire in three weeks. We had plans. I was going to be his guy, and he was going to take care of me, and he just hold on. He says, i got to finish this fish route, and I can't be with you like I want to do and work the steps. He said, but here, do this and this for three weeks. And I did. I got. I made Jeff Group Monday night, the internationally famous Jeff Group, my home group, Terry Kelly and and, – just a whole lot of people who aren't with us here anymore yep, yep. took me under their wing, mm-hmm. Bud Light, and yep. uh, and uh, I was doing the deal. Some famous names around yeah, here. Yeah, I was I was I was doing the deal, and Bud became. Uh, but I, here's what happened: uh, Fishman retired. He told Marilyn, "I said I'm going to take the dog down to the park," and he didn't come home. And she found him, and he was died of a heart attack on the bench. Really? That's how he passed. Yeah, right after he retired, he'd been about three days retired. Wow. And uh, so I got the news that I don't have a sponsor. And I figure that's what God's doing for me. Yeah. So then I picked a sponsor named Frank who liked to go to AA dances and, and uh, uh, pick up women. And so I learned how to do that sober. Uh, he was a really good teacher. Um, <laughs> and uh, But I noticed that uh, I had no feelings for my four children. It was all about me getting sober and finding a mate. Hmm. And I had fallen into that trap. I was staying sober, and I was helping people, 
but I was hurting as many people as I was helping because I'd take a girl out and then take another girl out and take another girl out. There was no relationship. It was just that. Yeah. And uh, and so that's when I noticed uh, Mickey and Bud ran around together all the time with Phil and a few other people. They would pile into the cars, Herb Bass and a few of them. They would all pile into cars and go places four or five times a week. Hmm. Well, I Mickey had, I don't know then, probably... 18, 20 years sobriety, and uh, he's got 54 now, yeah. and and so I didn't think he had time for me. So Bud was three years sober at that time, and he he had a uh, he seemed to have a good personality, and Mickey had taught him. So I figured some of Mickey will rub off on me through Bud. I didn't realize that's how it works, yeah. you know. Yeah. I just come up with that my logic, yeah. you know. And so I said, Bud, you be my sponsor, and he said, Yeah. And so something happened that I wanted to do these steps. I didn't know anything about it. I had read the first 164 pages like I was reading a book yeah. uh, three times. Got nothing out of it. Uh, identified with some things, some things I didn't. Uh, but I had more, way more questions than I got answers. And it's because I was reading it like a book. I wasn't reading it like an instruction manual, you know. I wasn't trying to assemble a sober life. I was just trying to find some tips and techniques, and uh, they're not in there. <laughs> and that's, that's why I was wasn't I was looking for the wrong thing, right? And I, my filter wasn't set for anything other than tips and techniques because I was so used to maneuvering and, and uh, cutting cutting corners. I right. thought that's the way I was going to yeah. get my sobriety. Yeah. And so, Bud, I didn't know it, but Bud had never worked steps. Really? Yeah. At three years sober, he had never done the steps. Hmm. So he goes, Mickey, Mickey, Mickey. And uh, and he he starts that journey. So really, Bud and I did the steps. He was one step ahead of me. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I was ready to do my fourth step, and he hadn't done his fifth step yet with Mickey. And I said, we're doing it tonight. My mom and dad, I can't do this anymore. So I did a fourth step and a fifth step with a guy who really didn't know what he was doing. And I'm here to tell you it worked. Hmm. Steps work. Yeah, they do. There's and, no wrong way. Yeah, because it forced Bud into this fourth realm of existence. It forced Mickey, who had been using meetings and the fellowship uh, and not using the literature for years. But Bill Wallace, Bill Wallace was one of service. You do service. That's how you stay sober. Yeah. Right? And a lot of people do stay yeah, sober on service. Yeah. But Mickey had to go back and with uh, Bob Wessel because his other sponsor had passed on. Hmm and actually do the steps as they were designed. So Mickey did the steps, Bud did the steps, and I did the steps. Right. We were all one step ahead of each other. Right there together. Yeah. And it it's was a bonding it, experience. Oh, it was. And that's why Mickey's my sponsor to this day. And that's why he's going to talk at my birthday. I I, uh, I have, uh, of course, I have respect for anybody who can stay sober 54 years. Yeah, yeah. And live the kind of life that Mickey has of service. Definitely. You know, running the Serenity House and all yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, he's been a real model for me, and throughout the years, we might we might go a year without talking. Oh, really? Yeah. And but I, he'll call me or I call him, and it's like we pick right up. Right. It's just you know, there's we don't miss a step, we don't yep. miss a beat. Yeah. Yep. The, the love that we have for each other is is, uh, and I'm able to pass that on to all the guys I sponsor. It's not something I generate. Right. You know, it comes from God. And uh, and and once I got that wreckage cleared away, 
to where there's an open place for God to come in my heart and do some work. I just, I, I had no idea that that was, you know, resentments and all that stuff that you find out or the yep. number one offender. I had no idea what that meant. When I read it, it just sounded like a nice idea. Yeah, you know, hurt, anger, threaten, interfere with, yeah, that's everything. You know, I had no idea that those were things for me to manage as a function of my word, my promise, to be willing to go to any length. Yeah. And I had no reverence for my speaking. Uh, I would promise you or tell you anything either to get you to do something or to avoid something. Right. And now I don't do that anymore. So it was a interesting thing. And uh, then about three years sober, I started a three-quarter house because I was saving the planet up in Lanesville. And uh, Terry Kelly, a few of them sent me some real hard cases. Roger Hightower, and a few of them sent me their, their hard cases up to this house that I had in Lanesville. Because they thought at, that I'd already talked at a couple of conventions with Jack Sullivan and Mickey, and mm. I was going to be this AA star, hmm. and uh, and uh, and I That's agreed. What we liked, and you? I agreed with it. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I was. Yep. I was sponsoring pretty close to fifty guys. Whoa! And but that I didn't sponsor them. I was sponsoring name only. I didn't. I, yeah. Some of them, if they wanted to come and hang out with me, I would help help them through the steps. Yeah. Uh, the way I understood them then, not like I understand them now. Right. And uh, and so I had these guys that were calling sex lines and running my phone line up to four hundred dollars a month uh. in Dominican Republic and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so uh, I was the treasurer for the internationally famous Jeff Group, and our collections back then might be seventy five, eighty five dollars a night. And my phone was getting ready to shut off. I mean, I was going to lose face in AA because these guys had paid out, done all this stuff. So I took this money that was AA's mm. and used it to pay. I justified it at three and a half years sober that they would be okay with this because actually I was helping these guys. Yeah, you know, all I'm doing. Yeah, I should be getting paid for it. Yeah, yeah. And so I took it, and paid those bills, and then I got a phone call from Terry Kelly saying, uh, how you doing? He says, I said, well, I'm having some trouble. I had a lot of health troubles. I got disabled in that accident eventually. I couldn't go to work anymore. I had all kinds of health problems. So now I'm on Social Security disability uh, during this. And uh, I'll finish this story, then I'll digress a, a hair. Um, and so I learned about honesty. AA has taught me everything. Me too. And uh, so stand, says, standing up that? to that, making that right, going through that shame uh, and, and uh, possible even jail time at three and a half years sober. Uh, there was something I got to go through this and I wasn't being noble. I knew that I was going to go back out and drink. I would rather be sober in jail than be free and drunk. Yeah. And I just, uh, I don't know where that came from. That was God doing for me what I couldn't do for right. myself. Yep. It was not self-generative at all. And when I, what happened was when I got this divorce, I had, uh, I was at uh, Frank Steakhouse with my parents for one of their anniversaries. And my sisters were there. And I'd taken one of the girls from Jeff Token Club to be my date. Mm -hmm. And I had this episode there. I, had, I was still recovering from the anhydrous and all that. And I had an episode there, and I woke up in Floyd Memorial Hospital in intensive care. And I looked up, and they were giving me a morphine drip. And I said, well, there goes my sobriety. Huh. You know? And <clears throat> I just couldn't face it. And so they had me strapped down, so apparently I was pretty combative. 
because um, I have a strap down. So I'm pulling, pulling, and I pull the IV out of my arm with my teeth. I get it worked around, and I just lay back going home to meet my maker because I my sobriety's blown now. I'm on morphine. I just, you know. Yeah. And so I woke up the next day, and I'm fine. And uh, there's Phoebe there and, and Donna. They were both in my home group, and they knew I was supposed to get my six-month chip that night. And uh, Phoebe had been sober about two and a half years, uh, decided to go out and do a little nose candy, and she made it back, and she'd been back about, you know, eight months maybe. But she had her original six-month chip, and she brought it to me, and she says, I want you to have this that worked for me for two and a half years, and mm -hmm. I love you, and she left. And Donna said, this is from your home group. We knew you were going to get your six-month chip tonight, and she left. And it was just enough. It was just enough. It's all I needed, and uh, I got back on track. Mm. And uh, so at nine months sober, I'm out of the hospital, still not working. And who I am is my employment, my job, right? right. That's my yep. that's my identity, identity is in sure. that. Yep. And and uh, and I'm not getting any better. In fact, in some areas, I'm getting much worse. And I've had all these tests and all that. So I stopped the Jeff Token Club to open my mail before I'm going to this doctor over on Broadway, uh, Dr. Ferris. And he's assembling all this from all these different tests, different locations, and they're going to tell me how they're going to fix me and all that. This was the day. So I stop and I'm opening my mail, and there's a letter from uh, Judge Striegel down here at Floyd County Court that my wife had filed for extra child support. Well, I haven't worked now in six months. What I mean, what she want from me? Right. You know? And uh, so now I think I'm just going to go to jail. I'm going to go to jail. And then I opened up a letter from ConAgra that says, look, we've discovered that you're going to be off for a long time. It said, we have to let you go. we got to replace you. Now, if you're ever healthy again, uh, you come back and reapply, and we'll be glad to rehire you. Hmm. So now i got no insurance. And I drive over there, and it's one of those spring thunderstorms. You know how they are, right, in May? This, yeah. was, well, this was the last week in April. Yeah. And... Uh, so it's dark, and it's coming down in buckets, and I'm driving that old Cutlass of mine. And I turn around to Bride on Broadway to try to find a place to park, and they got those paper bags all over the parking meters for the Pegasus Parade the next day. And I thought, man, it's coming down in buckets and lightning's going everywhere. And I see one of them that probably the bag blew off. Yeah. And I said, oh, that's God doing for me what I can't do for myself. And I pulled in there, put it in park, turned, off, you know, turned the car off. I reached out of my seat to get my umbrella. And it's not there. And I'd loaned it to Bud about a week before. And he hadn't given it back. Mm. And then, man, oh, man. So I run. Here I am, a cardiac patient, pulmonary patient. I run like I'm not going to get wet anyway. Yeah, right. Across Broadway. And I go sit in this guy's office, and I'm waiting for him. And it's like being in a, it really is like being in a, a judge's chambers. This, he had this big, real tall, red leather chair and a big, huge desk and files sitting all over his desk, right? And he comes in from the side door. He'd been over-treating somebody or something. He comes in, and he opens up the folder, and he's half out of breath, and he starts telling me how well I am and how well I'm going to be, and I feel horrible. Hmm. And, I'm thinking, and I look down in the folder, and it says, Farazi. Well, my last name is Belcher. And I looked at Dr. Ferris, and I said, Dr. Ferris, I don't spell Belcher F-E-R-E-Z-Z-I. And he goes at that and he goes, oh, well, it really doesn't matter anyway. And he slammed that thing shut and reached over and got my folder. And I thought, you're right. It doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. I'm going to go to jail. 
And he started telling me about how I was going to have to go here and get a test to U of L and go over here to Methodist to get this done and get this done. I've got no insurance now. I've got no income. I filed for disability, but they're telling me that's two years out. Mm. And I think, well, it doesn't matter. And I didn't even hear all he had to say. I just let him get through and he gave me some papers. By now I walk out, it's about four o'clock in the afternoon and it's quit raining. And you know how it gets after a, it's steam yeah. coming off the pavement. Yeah. It's hot and sultry and it's rush hour. It's thick around here. Yeah. And I walk across with my head down, almost got hit by a couple cars. And I go over to my cutlass and I put the key in there, I open the door and I look and there's something waving under the windshield wiper and I'd gotten a ticket. I took it and I threw it in the car and I sat down, jammed the key in the ignition, grabbed that thing over and it goes, Bleh. I'd left my lights on in that thunderstorm and sat uh, there for two hours yeah. and the battery was dead, you know? So I thought, hey, no problem. The car's going everywhere. I'll get this taken care of. And I popped the hood and opened the trunk and I reached in to get my jumper cables and Bud had got them at the same time he got my And I'm thinking, cables. man, there's a bunch of liars and thieves in this deal. I'm glad I'm an AA, you know? And, uh, so I went walking down Floyd Street because this was before cell phones. Used to be a, uh, in the medical towers down there, there used to be a little coffee shop that had a payphone in it. And so I go down there and I'm calling. And uh, nobody answers at my mom and dad's house. And Lou Ann answers at the Jeff Token Club and said everybody's gone. And I walk back and I'm just as alone as I've ever been in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to die. My kids are going to be raised by that guy who's living in my house instead of me. And I just collapsed in the back quarter panel of that old cutlass. Just fell against it. And it came out as involuntary as anything ever did. I said, God, please help me. And I hear, <coughs> and I look to the right, and this blue Camaro starting to back up. Young guy, about 25, 26 years old, had his bald hat on backwards. He looked at me and says, can I help you, buddy? And I just wanted to knock the lips right off his face. He was way too happy for me, right? And I said, well, I come over here and my battery's dead and I don't have, oh, I got cables. I got cables. He jumped out, brand new set of cables, still had the bread ties on them, right? Uh, and he said, I'm doing them and he hooks them up. And I've never, I promise you, I've never let anybody hook up cables in my car. But I let him because I was powerless. I just was just gone. I was an observer in my own life. Yeah. And uh, so he said, okay, try it. And I went, boom, started right up. So I get out to shut the trunk. And he's shutting the two hoods and putting the bread ties back on his cables. And uh, I met him between the two cars. I had a $5 bill left in my pocket. As far as I know, that, I think that was my life savings at that point. And uh, I said, here, buddy. And I took it out. I said, thank you. And he looked down on the console of that old cutlass, and he saw the carpenter's manual, King James Version. And he saw the big book, Al- Alcoholics Anonymous, sitting there. And he looked into here like you were talking about earlier, Dan. He looked down into here, way down into here. I mean, you've, ever, you've had people yeah. do that, right? Yeah. They look down into here, and it's uncomfortable, and there's no place to hide. And it, you know, you want to run, but you want to stay there. And yeah. it was, all this confusion is going on in me, and he says, you don't owe me nothing, buddy. I love you. And he grabbed his arm around me, and I'm sitting there just stiff as could be, you know. Yeah. And uh, he gave me this little nod, and he got in his blue Camaro, and he took off, and he turned right on Brook Street. And uh, all my troubles went with him that day, and they haven't come back. Hmm. And... Uh, if you'd have told me that God drove a blue Camaro with Kentucky tags, I'd have told you he's nuts. But I, yeah. I, that day I met the master. And uh, and things started happening then at nine months sober. At uh, one week after my token, are we doing okay on time? And oh, stuff? yeah, we, okay. we got all the time. Okay, all right. Uh, 
I started usually get, the last two, three hours. Okay, I got, I got, I got a decision uh, from the home group that they were going to have to celebrate my birthday uh, at about 13 and a half months because they were so busy. Mm. And people had nine years and 30 years and all this, and they were letting them go before me, and I thought it should be the other way, yeah. right? So now we're in September, and I get to celebrate my birthday rather than August. Huh. And uh, it was a great birthday. I don't want to take away from it. It was, it was really good. A couple of days later, I'm there at the Jeff Token Club like I usually am for the lunch bunch. I'm even help Bill cook a lot. I'd be back there doing the stuff. I wasn't yep. dipping my hand in a beer cooler. I was still back there helping, you know. And uh, the phone rang after lunch. Things had calmed down. People were going back to work. A few people playing euchre and whatever. And it was my daughter, Kim. She was in high school at the time. And she said, they just arrested my uncle, her uncle, my wife's brother. We had bought him a place out here on Mount Tabor Road, a mobile home, and we'd moved him and his girlfriend and three kids down from uh, Massachusetts. Hmm. He's special needs, and, and uh, we had him there. Said, uh, they just arrested Uncle Ed. Well, I figured it was a pot violation or something. And she said, no. Said, uh, seems that he's had a, a two-and-a-half-year affair with Michelle, his oldest daughter. They caught it at Mount Tabor School. And uh, they've taken him away to jail. I can, I can tell you a few things that I remember. The rest of it's pretty much blackout. Huh. I remember screaming at Kimberly. I remember her talking to me. She's in high school. She's trying to make sense of it all, right? Yeah. Plus, she's got a dad who's still acting crazy, right, at a year sober. And uh, so I jump in that cutlass, and I drive over to Floyd County Sheriff's Office, and I go in there, and I'm trying to get in there to kill Ed. And they inform me that I can't do that. Yeah, we'll and then, that But here. you can join him if you don't leave. Yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I'm drinking a drink in Ernie's bar that used to be there. Now it's a parking garage. But I'm in Ernie's bar after th at 12 months or 13 months sober. I'm down on a drink looking at the mirror. Oh, really? And I look at all those bottles and I spit it out. I had ordered Diet Coke. Again, God was doing for me what I couldn't do mm. for myself. He started yelling at me. He said, man, I ain't seen you for a year, and you're coming up throwing up all over. Get out of here. Get out of here. So I went walking up Market Street, and I cut over to Spring Street, and I'm just walking. My car's still down there. And I'm just like, and then all of a sudden, I heard what Kimberly told me. And he bothered me too, Dad. Mm. And I fell on the pavement right next to a payphone at the phone company, right across the street from Frisch's. I said, oh, my sponsor works for the phone company. And I called Willard, that was his first name, and that was also his phone number. Oh, really? Yeah. And I called Willard, and he just happened to be at his house. He said, I'll be right there to get you. And he took me to his house. And I'm a mess. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I say to him, bud, how are we going to get Ed? He said, I don't have a clue. That's not up to us. Well, I mean, something's got to be done. When, well, maybe, it, I don't know, but that's not up to us. He said, my job is to help you get rid of this resentment if you want to get rid of it. Well, I wasn't willing at that time to dispense with any resentment. Right. I wanted justice. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And so he said, then you need to leave my house and don't call me. He said, we're done. 
I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you broke your promise to me. I said, what promise is that? To be willing to go to any length. Hmm. And that's when he told me, he says, the book only has two things it asks you to remember because it knows you can't. It asks you to remember that you deal with alcohol and it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And then it says, remember, you agreed in the beginning to be willing to go to any length for victory over alcohol. It only asks you to remember two things, and I'm reminding you now. And if you're not willing, then there's nothing you and I have to talk about. Yeah. He said, I'm not your friend. If you want a friend, go get a dog. I am not here to be your friend. We may end up being friends, but that's not my intent or purpose. I looked at him. He says, just get out. And I started going to the door, and I said, probably one of the most profound questions I ever asked. I said, what do you mean? He said, sit down. He saw the change. When we were talking about transformation, that's when I started to transform. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what transformation was. And one of the favorite quotes that I learned that year was that what the butterfly calls the end of the world, the master calls a butterfly. Transformation is this unrecognizable at the gene level shift that you can't trace back to what it was like before. Yeah. There's, no, there's no way to connect the dots. And so I began this inquiry that day. Didn't know it, but that's when I began the inquiry into what a resentment was and, and is it the most fatal thing for us that have this thing? Because it says it's indeed grave, and in fact it's fatal, right? Yes. Hurt, anger, threatened, or interfered with. Gives us four criteria. And I began that inquiry that I still am in today, all these years later, as to what that means for me and how I can be effective in translating that to other people that I would help. Yeah. So sitting there in his living room, he outlined a plan. He says, does, it, does he smoke? I said, yeah, he smokes. He says, all right, every Thursday I want you to take him down a pack of cigarettes. I said, you are out of your mind. He says, well, then get out of my house. If you're not going to do what I'm saying, get out of my house. He said, this is the last warning. I'm not going to warn you again. You either do what I say or we have nothing to talk about. I said, all right. He says, now, every night before you go to bed, I want you to pray every good thing you want for yourself for him said, I want you to do it for two weeks, and then we'll get back together and talk. Mm. Now, I remember the first night. I don't remember any other night, but the first night that I, what I said was the best I could say. Based on the way I was brought up, my belief system at that time and all that, I said, God, I don't want to burn. Don't let Eddie burn. That's all I could say. And little did I know that God was chipping away the rocks from my soul. Right. And... In this inquiry about transformation, separate from change, you can take a change, you can take a, a piece of clay and turn it into a duck or an elephant. You can make it into glaze, but it's still clay, right? Right. What happens when that caterpillar goes in that cocoon that he spins himself? What happens? He devours himself. He devours himself till he can no longer devour himself, and it just turns out to goo and poop and nothing and pee and urine inside that cocoon. And then the master makes it a butterfly. 
And I didn't know that's what we do when we go into steps. Yeah. We devour self. Yeah. So that when we get through, we're a butterfly. That's a great analogy. And 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 uh, and so just like it says in in the carpenter's manual, you know, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says then you'll know what's good and right. Before you do it, you won't know. Yep. You'll be playing this game. So I did that. I went down and I. I took a $5 bill down and I wrote all kinds of things on it that I don't say anymore. And I'd slip it through the window and I see them laughing and all that. And I'd pray every night. And then at two weeks, I go to Bud's, meet him in his living room. He said, how's it working? I said, ain't working. He says, well, I said, I want you to start taking down $10 every Thursday night. Well, I said, well, you know, like I said, we're not stupid, right? I would be broke for I forgave this guy, right? And so the seemingly unconnected conversation I go visit my dad now. He's got some end-stage renal, and he's had a heart attack, and dementia's starting to come on, and he'd sit mm. on his front porch over there on Linwood Drive and feed his squirrels. Huh. And i go sit and visit him. So I go to visit him, and he's feeding his squirrel named Pal, and he put his arm around me. He says, when you were out there, you weren't that bad. He said, when I had the stroke, he said, for three weeks you were by my side. And you ran that company and got all those guys going. And you said you got your mom back from California and your sister back that was out there with them. Said you got your other sister back from France and you even made me my favorite fried chicken twice and brought it to the hospital. You weren't that bad. Huh. And I looked at him just like I'm looking at you, Dan. I said, Dad, you had a stroke? Hmm. I had no recollection of that three weeks. My dad having a stroke or me doing all those things he said I did. I didn't know. I thought blackout was passed out. I never passed out. And then I discovered there were huge chunks in my life as I started having conversations with people that I had no recollection. Yeah. A cruise I went on with my wife. Don't remember going don't on remember. a cruise. And then it hit me, sitting there right next to it. I said, this guy that did this is a drug addict and an alcoholic. Since I've been sober and before I got sober, my girls, my three girls would pile up in the bed with me because they loved their daddy so much and didn't get to see him all week. And I was still using them. Mm. And I pray to God that one day, one of them don't come up to me and say, Dad, there was that one night. But I discovered that now I can't say that I didn't. And the, the love and forgiveness of alcoholics taught us to send me on that porch and Eddie's dead now, but I used to go fix his cars, and I helped his daughter heal. And now she's a, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous mm. because of what you guys taught me about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the demonstration. It is the demonstration that your relationship with God is more important than the one you have with your ego. Yeah. There's no greater demonstration. Yeah. And it's not easy. And... uh and then that day would help me again when it came to the day when Katie got killed on the motorcycle at 10 years sober. Uh, Tell that I, story. I was uh, asked to go help a friend up in Greenville. His air conditioner went out. And uh, I was running a counseling company down here at the time. Didn't do much, but I still had my gauges and things like that. And he was a friend. And so I'm going to go up to Greenville, and then I'm supposed to talk at the AA meeting at Mount St. Francis. Kenny had asked me to talk. And so I said, I, I told Tina, my, at that time I was married to my third wife, and I'd already had 10 kids. I adopted her four, 
and I had four, and I adopted two as a secret single parent. And we ended up with 19 kids in my sobriety. We got 19 kids that we hold papers on. And I got 33 grandkids and two in the oven. And uh, two in the oven. Yeah, <laughs> two in the oven. One will be out of the oven this week. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you just had a grandbaby the other day too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Saw pictures. So I was down here in Charleston Road. Had a house right there. I bought the old Steinert house. Yep. And we were living in that. And uh, so I was getting ready to go. And Katie, she was my youngest biological. She used to love to go hear me talk at meetings. Now she's in the seventh seventh grade, going to the eighth grade. And uh, and she said, Dad, would you uh, let me go with you? And Dylan, my oldest adopted son, said, I'll wash the dishes for you, Katie, so you can go with Dad. And so. We got out in the pickup truck. She said, Dad, can we take the bike? It's such a really nice night. It's August 22nd. And I said, okay. So we got on the bike and put all the tools in the saddlebags, and we go up there, and I fix it. didn't take long. It was a blown capacitor. And we're coming back, and we're heading to Mount St. Francis, and it's about maybe 20 minutes to 8 to the meeting starts. And we're coming out of Greenville, and there's that uh, Mini Mart, Chevron Mini Mart on the right. And I start to pull in there and get Katie a Coke, and she says, Dad, you're going to be late. I don't want you to be late my account. I said, all right, you sure? She goes, sure. So we just went on down over the hill. And there was some kind of wreck there, as best I can remember. But I stopped, and I was even, I even said, thank you, God, for having good brakes on this bike because it was in a blind spot. Mm -hmm. And I put the kickstand down. We turned off the bike because it looked like there was a couple uh, cars down there and it was going to be a while. Police hadn't shown up yet for the wreck. So it just happened. I figured we we're going to be there a while. And uh, I said to Katie, it's a good thing we got brakes. She goes, lay out, and that's the last thing I remember. Uh, next thing I remember is I'm on my back looking up at leaves and it's dark and the leaves are moving and you can tell like wind's moving them but my my visual is coming back but I have no audio I can't hear a thing and I'm kind of like am I dreaming or you know I don't know what's going on right. and uh, all of a sudden a blue shirt and a badge goes over top of me like this like they're reaching for something and the audio comes up, I can hear chopper blades going whop, 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 whop. And then I feel like this enormous pressure is on my chest, like I can't, I, what's going on? And, I, and, and I, I don't know if I could raise my arms or not, I don't know what's going on. And uh, somebody asked me, do you have your driver's license? <laughs> and I said, it's in the bike, because everything went in the back mm -hmm. pouch on the bike. And all of a sudden they're lifting me up and we're heading for this chopper. Now, from this point on, this is all told to me by a couple state policemen and a couple EMTs. I have no recollection of this from this point on. This was all corroborating stuff that I got two and three weeks later. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because I had 13 broken ribs and, and both my lungs were punctured and they had just rammed a hole in the side of my chest and stuff was running out so I could breathe out of one of them. And they were getting ready to, to you know, run it down my throat, the vent, and load me on the chopper to fly me to U of L. And they said I reached and took a, a cell phone off an EMT's belt. And she started to take it back, and Officer Sams of the Floyd County Police Department tells this story. He said, let him take it. He said, he's not going to make it. And so, because I had, that was a mess. I had, and what I didn't know till later is that I, the bike was so destroyed that they thought Katie was driving the bike. They found her over a guardrail uh, dead in a, over on the side with a broken neck and broken back. Golly. And uh, a car had hit us doing, a young girl named Holly hit us, and she was doing over the speed limit, which everybody did there. 
and it was a blind spot, and she couldn't see until it was too late. She'd driven that road probably six times every day yep. and didn't see it. And she was 18. And, uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, well, how they treated her is a whole different story. We could go on for a long I found out that out years later. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, uh, they didn't know I was there. So when they started to raise the cars up that were all crunched together, they found me under the rear end of a car. I had been pushed. And so I was 22 minutes under the rear end of a car. They didn't even know I was there wow. before they lifted up the car. So I was a mess. Nobody thought I was going to leave. So I grabbed this cell phone, and they thought I was going to call my wife tell her goodbye. That's what Officer Sam thought. He'd been on the force about two years at that time. This was his first fatality wreck that he had gone to. And uh, I called my attorney down in New Albany, Irvin Sonic. I said, Irvin, I've been in a wreck. I don't think I'm going to make it. And I think Katie didn't make it. I said, my understanding is that there's a young girl that hit us. you got to let her know I forgive her. Mm-hmm. And I dropped the phone. So now I'm over at the hospital. I'm waiting to go back for a surgery. They finally get my wife over there. She's sitting there, and they still don't know where Katie is. Nobody knows where Katie is. It's been two, two hours. Not a person knows where Katie is. They're calling all these different hospitals. Nobody's saying anything about Katie. She's down at the Floyd County Corner. And uh, so there's all this uncertainty. Where's Katie? Where's Katie? Where's Katie? And they're getting ready to operate on me. And uh, I started making motions with my right hand like I wanted to write something. So Tina pulls this piece of paper out and gives me a pen. And... I started writing forgive over and over and over and over and over on this piece of paper. Hmm. And then she started crying so much, she left and my mom came in, who was in her 80s at the time. And uh, I started doing it again, and she gave me a Kleenex and forgive, 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 forgive. My mom was buried with that. Really? She, she kept that and was buried with that. Hmm. So... Three weeks later, I'm still in the hospital. I've got machines breathing for me, but I'm going to make it. I missed the funeral. And uh, and I go home on 9-11. The day of 9-11 is when I go home. The real 9-11. Real 9-11. And I go home early, and I'm sitting there. I can't lay down. I can't gravity. I can't lay down. i got to sit up. I'm just... It doesn't even feel like this is real all around my rib cage and all that. Mm-hmm. It's so still so distended and way out there. And and, uh, and I'm watching the Today Show, and I'm watching the planes hit the tower. And I get a phone call from Leland uh, Lockhart. He's the pastor of a church up in Georgetown. He married me. Yeah. And Leland said, I'm here with Holly and her mom, and she wants to come see you. I said, we'll bring her on down. So I let my wife and some of the kids know that the girl that hit us was coming down, and they all left. They weren't going to be in the same house with her. Mm. And uh, I started having, I'm looking at pictures of Katie and thinking about, you know. And uh, anyway, they show up, and we talk, and and uh, God laid it on my heart that not that she was going to be a replacement, but she was going to be an addition. This, this young girl was going to be my daughter. And I didn't know how I was going to show up or how I was going to work out. And I wasn't going to be intrusive and I wasn't going to be, but I was going to just follow his lead, follow God's lead, the Holy Spirit's lead, 
and see where this went. So Holly started her journey, as any 18-year-old girl would, being responsible for the taking of a life, yeah. right? And so she went through her drug period. She went through this and that and everything. And then when it came time to get sober, we got reconnected. Wow. I happened to go to a funeral of somebody who was murdered, Molly. It was her cousin, and it was my son's girlfriend. And I went over to Newcomer's funeral, and there was Holly. And she saw me, and she wanted to go out the door. And I said, Holly, I love you. And I said, I understand you're having a rough time right now. And I said, I have found a solution that works in my life. And if you ever want to talk about it, I said, I'm your guy. I said, I love you with all my heart. Mm. And uh, she cried and started hugging me, and, and we began that type of relationship. And uh, her consequences from cocaine uses was that she lost a really nice job and all of her possessions in her house. Because uh, I believe that cocaine is God's way of saying, you got too much money, boy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she discovered that. And uh, so I bought some of her furniture and different things way overpriced way overpriced but I, I wanted to do it so I could stay in her life and throughout the years we began to to be that for each other and one by one my children all of them have called Holly mm. and asked her to forgive them for the way that they treated her wow. uh, that's the way forgiveness works yeah. it's infectious yeah. uh, it's not letting somebody off the hook it's it, 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 it's just realizing that we are all meaning-making machines. We make this meaning, and then we get married to it. And then once we make this meaning, we collect evidence for this position we have, because we're evidence collectors. Yeah. And then we live inside this made-up fantasy world, collecting evidence and agreement. Because if we get agreement, then we got fact. It's no longer just my idea. It's fact, because you agree with me. And all this can, and so we got all this past sitting out in our future, informing us and telling us what's possible. And that's what the steps are so good at in a relationship with God is. He takes that past and sitting out there in the future that limits your selections. And item by item, if you do the work, he takes it puts it back in the past where it belongs. And what I discovered, when all that stuff gets put back in the past where it belongs, that leaves nothing in my future. And what can you do with nothing? Anything. Anything. All things are possible. I agree. And, and so it's uh, it's been that kind of a journey for me. Well, uh, one of the things that and I and she talked at my last birthday last year. Did she really? Yeah, she was the one to talk cool. to my birthday. How about that? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the kind of miracles that people won't even believe, you know. Yeah. But that this is that's the kind of things that happen when in in our community. Uh, one thing I always see, and it's it's that things happen with people. Yeah. That sh they shouldn't be able to stay sober through it. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. You shouldn't be able to. You Nobody would blame you know. them, right? Nope. Right, yep. And that one uh, really rocked me because I heard you talk early on when I was at some place. Yep. And, uh, and, and that really is one of the first ones where I saw a guy who had something happen that is impossible to stay sober. But you were evidence that, that you can, you know. And, and here's where it came from. It's this blue book. I'm a Christian. Jesus is my Savior. I got all that going on. Yeah, all right. Right. But I would have nothing if it wasn't for the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I have this malady. Yeah. There are a lot of people don't have to do this. Right. You know, my wife's one of them. She can have a beer, and she won't have one for another five years. Yeah. 
you know. There is a bottle of wine in my refrigerator that's probably worth a million bucks because it's been there for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case she wants it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, really, it's that way. Yeah. Uh, so I've been freed from all this uh, proselytizing and telling people and saving people and all that. I just really do get to show up in love and service and, and listen. And when you listen to people without an agenda, mm-hmm. they respond. Yeah, yep. I mean, they do. And I, it took me years of training to get that. Yeah. I, basically, not so much training, but untraining. Yeah, and right. I got it through this book yeah. where it says, we, we preach it over and over again, but it, it means more to me every day. That it's deeper and wider and broader. Is that our what we really have is this daily reprieve based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition, not our spiritual condition. The maintenance, maintenance of, it. of it. That I do today what I did yesterday gives me a shot of tomorrow. And this power, this power, I call it God. Me too. But this power has the selection that I want to make not make sense. That's what he does for me. Yeah. Not that I don't want to make the selection, but it just doesn't make sense. It's a, it's a valuable solution. It's, it's viable. I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and for some reason I don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Something else happens, and it works out better than I could have ever planned. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. That's that's been my experience. Once yeah. I finally did that deal, where I truly surrendered to this thing and just pushed all my chips to the middle of the table, you know, and said, "Okay, God, what do you want me to do?" I'm, I'm I've got a couple of guys that I'm taking through a four step right now at House of New Beginnings in Corden, uh-huh. and one at Free from Within in Corden. And I I where it says in how it works when you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, mm-hmm. then you're ready to take certain steps. That's right. when you're ready to take steps, yeah. right? Right. And so if they do that and promise me that, then I do a first, second, third step with them in about an hour. Do you? And then we get on, I say, you've got four days to finish your inventory. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you've lied to me because you're not willing to go to any length for victory over alcohol. I said, so you've got four days, and we're going to meet and do a fifth step. And if it's not ready, now you can call me as many times during that four step, four days for clarification. Call me at two, three in yep, the morning. Got any questions? Got yep, any? right. I did one today. A guy yep. called me, and uh, yep. he he was stalling. And yep. I'm not quite so. I, I I pay a little more rope out sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and this guy lives in Texas. Yeah. And I'm sponsoring him through twelve yeah. steps on telephone and Zoom yeah. meeting kind of stuff. Yeah. And he bumped yeah. into me and asked me, "Would I help him?" You know. That's and great. I'm like, "Sure, man." That's great. So we're developing this relationship. And he's he he took July off. Uh, he had his kids all July, you know, he's a divorced father and all yep. that. And he, and, and when July came and he had his kids full time for the summer, he just pretty much took off. He didn't drink though. So he stayed sober through it. But when he got back, he, uh, he won't get going again. And so today he's calls and he's asking and he goes, man, there's a lot of names coming in my head. You know, should I write all them down? I said, Yes. yes, if it's in the room, yeah. you got an inventory. Yeah, that's what I tell you, man. And I instruct my guys to sit quietly for a minute, say a prayer, and ask yeah. God to help them find them oh, names. Yeah. And I that's said, great. you know, when those names come and hit you, you got to trust that God gave them to you. Yeah. So now it's your job is just because to write the, them down. If the name's there, job. it's in the room. Yep. Inventory of the room. Yep. The room's your mind. Right. Yep. And so. Uh, and it's fun. Yeah, oh, yeah. And so I'm talking to this guy, Bo, who's been uh, 38 years, no, 40, 42 years Louisville Outlaw. Oh, wow. And his wife of 32 years died of cancer this year. Oh, wow. 
and uh, and so he's uh, he's never been a victim in his life. He's proactive, and he's been being a victim hmm. since his wife died of cancer. Hmm. And why, you know, and and so he actually during this process he went to church with me Sunday morning, first time in forty two years he's been in a church. Hmm. And so we're having great conversations. We had one today about putting that past back in the past where it belongs so that anything's possible. I said, I've got no agenda for you. I said, but God does. And for you to get that communication and to have that relationship with him, you've got to die. Yeah. You have got to die. And that's what we're talking about, this relieving of the bondage of self. And uh, it is just, we talked about it early, about working with others. I got my son into... uh, one of my sons, Todd, in the treatment, uh, not treatment, took him up to House of New Beginnings six months ago. And he graduated, and they are saying he's one of the biggest servants they've ever had there. Today he came up with, he, he got one of my grandsons and, and took him to get his ID. He got him out of the healing place, and he's taking him up there to put him up there. He, he went and took food everywhere. And this is a guy who for 20 years just wanted his whiskey mm-hmm. and made his kids go away. And, and he's just completely in six months' time, right? Yeah. And uh, so time and time and time again, I see it go both ways. And the real common denominator that I've discovered is pretty common is that they do not want a relationship with a sponsor. Hmm. Is that the way I was taught, you have to call me every day. That's why You don't have to get me. No, I don't say I will answer yeah, every day. Yeah. you got to call me every you day. you got to call me and leave a message. And leave no me text, a message. And there needs no to be text, some kind of message. Like to, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I said, you know, I yeah. want to know, talk, just like I answered the phone, mm-hmm. tell me what's going on with you yeah. today. And then my commitment that I use, because they used it with me, is that if at all humanly possible, unless you tell me different, I'll get back to you within three hours. Mm. And uh, and I try to keep that commitment. Yeah, me too. And so, even if I just acknowledge it through yeah, text or something, yeah, and yeah. I will, the, yeah. I'll touch base. I keep in contact. So, I mean, I love my life today. I, I've yeah. got, uh, I'm, I'm really into prison ministries. Right. Uh, I'm doing. I we started a thing called Church Anywhere. Uh, a bunch of some of my AA friends that go to church, and we were going to Branchville Prison every Tuesday night, taking an, uh, an AA church meeting up there, mm-hmm. and it grew to about a thousand guys a week. Wow! And then we. Uh, or well, a month. We can only they they gave us smaller meetings, but once a month we could have the whole campus. Oh. So five hundred to a thousand, and uh, and so when COVID came, it all stopped. And so we got a hold in Indiana. They have tablets. It's an intranet, so it's controlled uh, what they can get on their tablets. And so we started this conversation with uh, Chaplain Gray at Branchville, and then Joni and a few other people. So now, every Sunday, about uh, 38 to 100 to 4,000 residents of different prisons in Indiana view our meeting. Oh, wow. We get an hour and a half, and we have a meeting. And uh, we do music, and we do, we do church, and we do AA, and we do all kinds of stuff. And so that is, uh, we, sometimes we'll get 12,000 hits a week. Wow. But they have a... They can tell how long somebody stays, mm-hmm. you know, if it's five minutes or the whole time. Last week we had 3,800 stay the whole time, and we got 20-some-odd letters. We get about 20 to 30 letters a week from okay. different places all over Indiana wanting to know about this, how can we do this, or whatever, or just letting us know thank you. Yeah. Some of these some of these guys will send us a $5 check. Oh, really? You know, and that's a whole month's wages almost. Yeah. And uh, 
and uh, so that's what we're doing during COVID. So one of our guys, Rodney, who he uh, he's one of the big managers at Fred Smith's up in Court, in the, the furniture place. Yep. I'm I'm his mentor, and he was he's got a niece that's in uh, prison in Atlanta. It just happened, first time prison person, mm. and he was talking to her, and a light went off, and so he got a hold of two attorneys down there, and uh, so now it looks like we're going to get the state of Georgia, which will be another twenty six thousand. Uh, residents, inmates, to do this, and then so we're going to fill in with Tennessee and Kentucky next. We're going to fill a gap in, How cool and, is that? and so all that's happened since COVID. We were worried about the guys not reaching the guys, and, and now we, yeah. yeah. So we meet every Tuesday night in the building in Cordon. We have a committee, and we answer correspondence, and we make plans, and and uh, and then on uh, Saturday and Sunday we film it, and uh, at uh, First Capital Christian Church, they let us use their facilities for church anywhere, and uh, it's part of their ministry now. And so we, we go in nursing homes, we go in prisons, we go in county jails, we go everywhere. And it's, uh, it's been really gratifying to be have. And when they come out, that's what I'm known for now, is when people fail at halfway houses, like House of New Beginnings or Serenity House or something like that, I'm the guy that stays in contact with them. Hmm. And so like a little kid today, Ian, I got him out of healing place because he had failed in a couple of places. And uh, helped him get his ID today. He's getting his COVID test tomorrow, and we're going to put him in the house of new beginnings. And it's it's that's what I get to do today, all day long, all night long. Yeah, it's what I get to do. And I got a wife that God gave me who's fully supportive. Yeah. And we both have our problems. I mean, I'm I'm on I'm on dialysis three days a week, five and a half hours each session. Whoa. I'm a, I'm a. Uh, a congestive heart person. I have to sometimes I can't breathe and walk. Uh, I've had bypass surgeries. I've had, I've got all kinds of stuff going on. That right now, I've had uh, a big neck surgery, and I'm getting ready to have a lower back surgery, from, still from the motorcycle wreck. Uh, my my neck's all fused, and uh, and uh, I ache and pain all the time. And I wouldn't trade a minute of it. Yeah. I wouldn't trade a minute of it. I got zero regrets, zero resentments. I have a life I love, and I live it powerfully, and it's all due. To this blue book, the fellowship, prayer, and God, yeah. uh, and uh, it's a powerful service, story. Yeah. service, service, That's service, thing service, I'm, service. You know, God gave me ability to watch people. You know, yeah. and it worked in the way that you're talking about the chameleon stuff. You know, yeah. like you said, you know, I can figure out to do, but that actually served me when I came in here. Yeah. Because God did say, "Watch this dude." Yeah. And watch this dude. You know, and everybody's teaching me. Some people teaching me what to do, and some people teaching me what not to do. But I have uh, kept an eye. You know, I see you. You know, and uh, uh, and I think God does that too. Put you where I see see a guy. You know, <laughs> I saw a picture the other day on Facebook and a guy named Derek. Yeah. And you know, Derek, man, uh, he was coming around us early on. Yeah. And me and one, he actually my one of my sponsees was he was attracted to one of my sponsees, and they were trying to work it together. But at that time, Derek was not even close. No, 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 no. Too ready. No. Uh, he was coming and tell blow, blow vodka breath right on you until you look you square in the eye and tell you he's sober. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's just like, Derek, come on. He said, it must be my cologne or something. He's celebrating one year and next month. I know. I heard that man. How I mean when uh, and he actually got a hold of my my sponsee Chase. 
other day and 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 told him that and uh chase said something to me he said hey man let's go let's go uh celebrate so we'll, we'll probably we're going to try to be there i hope so he did uh, he'd love to see him yeah and, that's and, he, and he does stories. he does my meeting for me now in hickory every, every four o'clock at four thirty every sunday super so good because that yeah. guy was so done whenever oh, i met yeah. him man i mean he would he, well, he his last his last back his last frontier is still uh working on his mother he's he's still She's as big as enabler and therefore as big as resentment because she, she's learned better. <laughs> uh, this is a great thing, you know, and I, and I tell people, you know, I do this little handyman gig and I do this um, yeah. and this woodworking thing and to pay the bills and all that. Mm-hmm. But the rest of my life is uh, working in recovery some level or another. Where yeah, God makes that available, doesn't he? Or to, with, yeah. a, with a lot of sponsees, a lot of people come to me for that. And I, and I sponsor people in that. And I never did finish that little commercial earlier. That TSSR book can be found on Amazon. So we're having meetings in Louisville where we deliver the 12 steps to anybody that wants to come. Cool. Come on in. That's great. And I have a number of people who are, you know, normal people. Yep. And sponsoring them and watching a miracle happen. And the kind of stuff that happens, you know, like people actually heal sometimes, you know, like they will have a sickness. They'll have something and it actually, you know, it'll drop off. And they're, what that book says, our problems fall away. Uh, and when we get here, they're piled up so high, oh, we can't yeah. even begin to think to solve them all, you know. Yeah. And you say, and then, like it says, he's going to do this. We're he solves them this. for you. All you got to do right. is show up. Yeah. That's the yeah. miracle of it, it says. He yeah, solves keep them. Keep them in this work, you know, yeah. get them through them steps. And if they follow this stuff, man, that stuff just kind of, you know, Jerry. Yeah. You know, he, he when and I still use it. It's sitting in there because I'll show it on. We have, I host a Zoom meetings for my home group yeah. and for TSSR right now since the COVID thing. And, uh, and that keeps me in service too, you know, to, to operate and be the host and, and mm-hmm. run that. I got a big 40 inch TV in there on the table that I can put all the people <laughs> up on because it makes me feel closer to them. You know, I feel more like I'm there. Yeah. Because this community thing is very important to me, you know. And, yeah. and God's also made it to where I get to see people. Some of these guys are, you know, well, for a while, wasn't seeing anybody, you know, and they were, and, and that's really on them at some level. But, you know, I get people in here to do a podcast. Uh, my sponsees and I still get together, and we run around, and we do stuff. That's uh, great. Sunday morning. Uh, so you're combining uh, the Christian thing. Yeah. Combining Christian. Well, sometimes combining. I keep it very separate, it, you know, because I I honestly believe there was a guy named Frank used to hang around. I don't know what happened to him, but he was his home group was Henryville. Hmm. And I went, oh, that's probably me, two years sober. And I heard him give his definition at a talk of addiction. And... I've, again, been in that inquiry since I heard it. And his, his definition of addiction, where you're saying this, like it says in the book, we've discovered this way of life is good for everybody, right? Yeah. Um, he says, an addiction is anything you instinctively defend your right to do regardless of consequence. Hmm. It's oh. just right there for you to defend your right to do it regardless of consequence. And so I can look at my food, I can look at my righteousness in a relationship and what runs that, you know, am I trying to survive and look good and, and, and uh, you know. Um, my spending. Yeah. My... Just everything. Yeah, everything. Everything. And so I apply that to wherever I see that I don't have any, it, whenever I have a loss of power, freedom, or full self-expression, I realize that I bought into a lie. Somewhere I have made a lie a truth. Now, I have to work many times because it's hidden from my view. Yeah. But if I'm if I use that as my alarm bell, 
anytime I have a loss of power, freedom, or full self-expression, I need to stop the action, or I'm going to I'm digging a I'm digging a trench that I'm going to be stuck in, mm. and I'm going to have other people in it with me, mm. and I'm not committed to that today. Yeah. I'm not committed to surviving and looking good, you know. I've turned my will and my life over to care of this God, and it's a promise, and I have to manage my word, my promises, and my agreements. And so that's what I'm doing today. I've developed, again, this reverence for my speaking where my promises and agreements are what matter. Right. And don't open your mouth if you're not going to manage your promise and agreements. Keep it to yourself because nobody needs another broken promise and agreement from you. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, I pause. Yeah. I do this. I do that. And the other thing, speaking of Derek, he, he won't mind me telling this. And if he does, he'll have to get a resentment. <laughs> Recently, just recently, uh, one of the guys named Hunter left. He's a young man. And for the second time, he left Freed from Within, a, a transitional care facility in court. Uh, spent about a week out there. I get a call, and I get him and put him in the house of New Beginnings. Right? He's ready to go back in. And I let him know that I can't, if, if it will work with me, we'd have found something. So you just need to be looking for somebody to sponsor you and mentor you, right? And so Derek's in the front seat with me. Hunter's in the back, and we're doing some stuff because I sponsor Derek. And and so, and so Hunter says something to the effect that I've been watching you, and, and you've almost got a year of sobriety, and, and uh, you've gone through the steps with Dennis, and... Uh, and you help people all the time, give them rides and do this and sit and talk with them about problems and all that. Said, so would you be my sponsor? Hmm. And Derek's never sponsored anybody. Yeah. And he looked at me. This was just a couple of days ago. And, I, and of course, I'm uh, Mark Twain, one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes is, humor is nothing but tragedy plus time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I remember me going through this being put on the spot by somebody when I was new in sobriety to be their sponsor yeah. when I knew that I was totally incapable of being yeah. sponsoring anybody. Right. I couldn't even brush my teeth right, let alone, you know. And and so Derek gives the classic Christian response, I'll pray about it. So I stopped the car. I pulled it right over. I said, look, I said, we're all in this together. We're training each other. We're going to grow together. So let's take this as a training moment. I said, this guy here is going down for the third time. He's failed at two halfway houses. He's put it all on the line before they assigned him sponsors. This is the first time in his life he's ever asked for help. So he's going down for the third time. You've been given a lifeboat. You're circling him, and you say to him, I'm going to go over and have lunch at the beach. If you're still alive when I get back, I'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Derek looked at me like he could have killed me, yeah. you know. And he said, okay, all right, I'll, I'll take you on. And then he started yeah. giving him, you got to call me and that. And, of course, Hunter got over there, found some other people during his orientation, and he's got found another guy, and he never called Derek. Hmm. So now Derek is having to grapple with, yeah. why didn't he call me? You know, and yeah. this is how it, it is. works in this fellowship. It is. And we're all there to address every stupid thing that runs our life that's hidden from our view. Right. Yep. And expose it, bring it out in the sunlight. And, uh, I mean, this thing just works. Yep, it does, and it makes it impossible possible. Yeah. You know? And the other thing I love about it is that, you know, uh, I never did aim at many of the things I'm doing. Yeah. You know, yeah. like this. Yeah. I never aimed at this, you know, no. not really. I no. Mean, we just kind of 
organically kind of happens, you know, and yeah. through some things. And that, this wood shop is a is a product of my recovery. Yeah. Uh, having this, a lot of these tools in here are my grandfather's tools. That's so cool. And they were my dad's, and they yeah. come through, and these were all in the basement. And and at some point, uh, Dad and I decided we need a wood shop, and boom, here it is. You know, and, wonderful. Uh, wonderful. You know, well, you're combining stuff, and I like that, you know, because uh, one of the things that I really combine is the physical end of things, and, mm-hmm. and I found yoga as a practice. Yeah, that's yeah, really, I know really that. You, t- you shared with me that several yeah. times. Yeah, and uh, so that's something I add to on when I'm yeah. doing recovery work with people, and and I just love to combine the twelve steps and yoga together, and uh, that kind of to me it wraps up that mind, body, spirit, gets all that in action. And I think that Trinity is important. I think it's important, like when we say God and the Holy Spirit and yeah. Jesus. I think the Trinity comes to mind, body, spirit. All those that three is a magic number. Absolutely. And these things. So I get and, that. And so and, many, so many things. Three yeah, is a magic number. Yeah, it is. You know, uh, and it, it's a. I tell the guys, after I take them through the steps, I get them up, working on their eighth and ninth step. Uh-huh. And I don't ever mention, my belief system. Unless they ask me, I'll tell them. Yeah. But I, you know, I don't proselytize. I don't. Yeah. And when they get hungry for it, and they're doing, they're they're into helping others and the family afterwards, and they're reading those chapters, and they're sitting to see how, you know, they're they're really getting to see how all this impacts, you know, like yeah. I'm going to meet with somebody from Tell City Friday morning uh, that I sponsored for a year. He went back out, and he's out in the madness, and his mom called me Monday. Hmm. And it's her only son, and she and her and her and her husband's dying of cancer, and she just had open heart surgery. And I said, "Do you want to be well?" She goes, "What?" And I want to know about my son Josh. I want to know. I said, "Yeah, I got all that." And I said, "Do you want to be well?" And so she's going to meet me Friday morning, and I'm going to tell her how to get well. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to meet at eight o'clock up in Leavenworth at the truck stop there, and we're going to spend two hours together, and I'm going to show her how to get well. Oh, cool. And uh, and if she wants her husband to come, uh, you know he won't come because he don't want anything to do with anything to do with Josh. I said it has nothing to do with Josh. Nothing. Yeah. Josh is on his journey. How about you and yours? Right. And so, this is, I mean, what a freeing way to live. Mm-hmm. To never be a victim. Yeah. You know, to always be cause in the matter of your own life. You know, to always be cause. Yeah. Never not be cause. It's just uh, such a powerful way to live. And uh, uh, I don't know, I, it, it's, 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 uh, I see why you say this is, it's easy for this to stretch out two or three hours without any effort. Yeah, without anything. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. feel like it either. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's surprised. You know, yeah. There is a clock up there if they want to look at it. I've but, never looked. Uh, I people, haven't looked this whole yeah, session. Yeah. Matter of fact, know, now I'm not <laughs> yeah, I see. I see people's eyes do that. And it's yeah. another thing that I tend to ask people before the podcast, is there a hard stop? You know, yeah. Is there something, do you need to be, if you need no. to be someplace, I can keep no. an eye on it because no. my guests I, won't. I, I have dialysis at 6 a.m. Yeah. Other than that, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. and that's what happens. We just sit here and we organically talk about this stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and a guy will tell a story and it's kind of like a speaker meeting and, mm-hmm. and you know, and, so, my, and there's a whole bunch of people will sit down and listen I've to said a three-hour podcast. Many, many guys. I said at the bow that this week in Will, I took another guy, Bill, Will and Bo, with me from the House of New Beginnings to church uh, uh, because I knew what they were going to talk about and they were going to be talking about uh, scars. And mm. the, it's a four-part sermon series called Dancing with the Scars. Mm. And he talks about how scars and how they heal and how people should be proud of their scars because it shows that you survived. Yeah. 
you don't need to hide your scar. Right. And so I said this, and I've said it, I don't know how many people, you have recovered from a seemingly hopeless case of mind and body. These steps have placed you, not in recovery, but you have recovered. And to tell others exactly how you recovered is the reason for your existence. You maintain, you grow in power and effectiveness, like that book says. That's our purpose, is to grow in power and effectiveness for the rest of our lives. That's it. That's the game. Break's over. Yeah. You get no break. You yeah. don't get to take July off and spend it with your kids, yeah, right? right? I know. Break's over. And, and I say, so, you're sober. Big whoop. That's the booby prize. Yeah. Do you root the real prize? And I invite them to go prize. to church, and I plug them into a group. Not to be a Christian. If they want to be a Christian, that's fine. But I plug them into a group working in prisons or working in the homeless or working in food shelters. And, you know, and, and, and I plug them in. And they start to get the real on-the-ground experience of service yeah. and what that makes available, right. you know, and exposes you to. And, uh, I, I, you know, I'm so grateful for the giants that did that for me, that took me to Wayside Mission early in my sobriety and had me serve dinners at the Jeff Token Club on Thanksgiving rather than spend it with my family. Yeah. And uh, just all kinds of things they taught me to do, to go to Madison to the to the nut hospital and give my story over and over again to Scalia Unit and and to go to LaGrange to Rotor Farm and Boot Camp every Thursday night and to Orange County Jail every Friday night for four years and uh-huh. all of that, you know? Yeah. And now it led to this wonderful prison ministry that I'm involved with. Yeah. I do RECs where we go in and spend all three three days with the prisoners and feed them and talk to them. And then we follow them after they leave. And we get them, we don't just leave them there. Right, yeah. You know, we follow them after they leave. I've got, I went and saw Glenn in, in Evansville this week. The guys, he's never... After 22 years, he got his driver's license. Wow. He's making $24 an hour at Boots Manufacturing in Evansville. Mm-hmm. He's got his own apartment. He bought, paid uh, for a new Tacoma truck. I mean, all this stuff has happened to this guy. Yeah. Simply because he was finally ready. Yeah. Yep. He had to die to self. Yep. And when they, ready when you die, die to self, and, and, and of course nobody ever has until they do it, so they don't know what it looks like. Nope. And that's why they got to trust us. Yeah. You yep. got to trust your sponsor. You do. And, uh, yep. That, and there's some magic in how that works in that whole oh yeah. setup. It's all magic. You know, I mean, it, uh, it's just because that's, you know, there's a chapter in there that says how it works. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I can't begin to tell you how this thing works. All I know is the evidence out there of what's working in my life. And then, and that really did, you know, everything like that piles up more and more of this spiritual, uh, momentum yeah as you start giving it away and you start seeing how that works and then those people are giving it away to somebody and you see that and uh you know, i like the way you say that past thing and then when you get going and you start talking about this stuff i've always loved that because i've been witness to that because i'll see and i know that i do it too when i'm working with my guys i go into a different space you know when i start talking about what's going mm-hmm. on in this i go into a different space and uh and it's not me yeah it's it's I'm a well, vessel and uh, a vehicle for here's what the way that it was power is. to me that got me thinking about this past is in your future and being a medium machine. Yeah. And uh, I and and when I read Ecclesiastes in the Bible, where King Solomon was kept saying through it all the way through, if you do this, it's meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. He repeats himself throughout that book about the meaningless of life. And so, the guy explained it to me. He said, "Let's just pay it's Friday and it's payday." It's 2 o'clock, you're in your afternoon break, and your boss comes up to you. You get off at 4, 
He says, I need this done, this done, this done, this done for you to go home today. And you're thinking, I just gave you 40 hours, and you just gave me six hours work to do in two and a half hours. What's wrong with you, you know? And you reach into your lunch pail to take a little revenge bite out of a sandwich or something, and your finger brushes against an envelope. And inside that envelope, you know are two tickets for you and your sweetie to be at the Louisville airport tomorrow morning, and you're going to fly to Hawaii for two weeks. What's your feeling? I'm out of here. Screw that old man, right? So fast forward two weeks. You're sitting on the beach. You're tanning places we're not even going to talk about. (laughs) You know, the waves are lapping, the trade winds are hitting the palm fronds, you know, and you got your little drink with the umbrella in it, and the hula boys and the hula girls are hitting the ukulele and singing, and you're just sitting there with your sweetie, and you get ready to take care of the most important task of the day, and you reach in your bag to get out some suntan lotion to rub on your sweetie's back, and your fingers brush against that envelope that you know contain two one-way tickets that are going to have you be on that plane tomorrow morning and fly back to cold Louisville. And to a boss that's pretty ticked off, you didn't do what he said. What's your experience now? So, I mean, think about it. You're where you don't want to be and you're, whoa, whoa, whoa. And where you wanted to be your entire life with the person you wanted to spend time with your entire life. And you're, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? It's the future you're living into that makes you who you are in the present. That's why it's crucial to identify that your past is out there controlling your future. Because it makes you who you are being. And unless you have a mechanism to identify it and have it put back in the past where it belongs, you are a stimulus response machine. You have no say in the way your life goes. And you go through your whole life, then you die, and they put you in a hole and they throw dirt in your face and they sit around on top and say, well, he was a good guy, he had this problem and that problem, but basically he was a good guy. And they go to Denny's and do lunch and that's your life. And what this makes available is that you have a say in the way your life goes because you have all these structures, both in prayer, conversation, literature, and in in hanging with fellow believers and in service work that keep that past back in the past where it belongs so that you've got this wide open space because we are meaning-making machines. Life is empty and meaningless, and it doesn't mean anything that it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything that it doesn't mean anything. And right away we say, well, yeah, yeah it's, worth, it's worth a lot. It's, you know, I didn't say anything about worth. I said meaning. You already, you got to make it mean worth. You can't leave it alone. Yeah. I remember when I was first getting sober, they told me you need group therapy. I said, I don't need group therapy. I get in the car all by myself. Do this, do that. It's the bright, it's wrong, it's good, it's bad. It never shuts up. I just wanted to get it down to one voice. And that's what sobriety has done. Yeah. I get it down to one voice most times. And it's pretty clear. Stay out of it. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's pretty clear. Yep. Yep. You know that doing that. You know, uh, think of like what that opens up for you in the yeah. front end. That these endless possibilities. Yeah. If I can quit worrying about what that was. Endless possibilities. Me. And then uh, the, I tell guys, uh, you know, the world, you, world is your oyster. Yep. If you just do this work and start practicing this stuff, uh, and, and don't begin to tell me what you're going to do. Because that ain't, that ain't in the plan. Uh, you know, that everybody has seen these mechanisms that are human, generic. I don't care if you're from Japan or Cape Cod. The mechanisms are the same. Yeah. Okay? And everybody, I mean, everybody's seen the pictures of the Moro River in Africa and the wildebeest migrating and the crocodiles eating them up. I mean, you, you can't be alive and not have seen that somewhere sometime, yeah. right? So... The only difference between them is that they take this path 
that they've been taken over and over and over again that was taught to them by the previous generation. And they go to this place in the Morrow River where three weeks before there's not a crocodile to be seen. They're scattered all up and down the Morrow River trying to survive and look good themselves. But they know during this three weeks it's dinner time. So they jam in there for that three weeks in that one section of Morrow River that's about two and a half miles long. Hundreds of crocodiles, not crocodiles, that aren't there the rest of the year. Yeah. And these wildebeest could go up or down two miles and cross safely. But no, got to cross right here because we always have. The only difference between them and us is that we care how we look while we're being eaten. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And you learn that in that book. Yeah. The mechanisms are the same. And you get free of that. And, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's a life. That's an extraordinary life because 99% of the people on the planet will never get there. Right. Yep. Yep. Even like, you know, different things happen in life like COVID. Yeah. I felt like my, you know, I'm just hit, I'm about five and a half years. And it felt like those five and a half years were for dealing with things like this. Absolutely. It you know, all is. It felt like training. I tell, uh, and I still I know whatever's next is the same thing that I'm just being trained. This conversation and like you and you I said earlier, yeah, I had to do that untraining first. Yeah, right? untraining, and that's the tough and that, part. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, so I don't I, cross the goddamn river at that part. Anymore. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and 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 it really is that way. And well, I lost my thought, which is probably appropriate, but I might have sidetracked you. That's okay. No, it'll come back or it won't. I'm yeah. not attached to all that anymore. Yeah, right, like, yeah. you know, I got that something that important to say. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I've liked it. Well, it's been a joy, buddy. Yeah, man. Uh, and I, one th- and I, my listeners probably get tired of hearing this, but every single time I sit across this table with somebody that's got their story and we do this thing, there's yeah. a connection that happens. Yeah, and there's some I say collateral benefits. See, I don't get collateral damage anymore in my life. That's not part of my life anymore. Everything now is collateral benefit. It's accident blessings, and I get to know a guy or a gal better. Yeah, and uh, I say every time you know we were friends before, but it deepens that friendship. Yeah, sometimes I have people that I don't know that are sent here. Yeah, the first time I ever meet them is in the driveway. Yeah, and they come here and sit and talk to me, and I get a new friend. Yeah. You know, a new battle buddy for this thing called life and to, to, to do it I've together. Got, I, I, God has allowed me in some area, some ways to have, it's not unlike a photographic memory. Mm-hmm. Me too. Mine come in quotes. I will remember a quote that impacts me for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a statistic, silly things like the yep. Washington Monument's 555 feet tall, right? I learned that in the eighth grade, it's still there, right? And other things that you tell me right now disappear. Right. It's like that thought I had. Yep. It's gone. Yep. And one of the freedoms that I've got is that God allows me, and here's what I was going to say, here's what I'm going to say, because I it, it came right back, is that what I've discovered that you and I feel like we're talking about us, recovery, you know, God, the benefits, wreckage of the past. You know, it feels like that's what we're talking about. Yeah. But really, God is preparing us so that when he says, now, Dan, you'll get something from this conversation that you'll alter the course of someone's life you've yet to meet. Yeah. That's the purpose of this conversation. Yeah. It's not for your listeners. 
It's not for any of that, although they people get the benefit of it. There are a lot of people that get the benefit of me staying sober. Yeah. They get the uh, taste of what it's like. I reunite families. I get to be in those conversations and all that. But my full intent is to be of service to God. So when he says, now, Dennis, I'm not bogged down with being angry about something or sad about something or frightened about something that I can't hear him say, now, Dennis, and that person walks right in front of me because I'm wrapped up. I'm available to be there for that person to alter their course because ultimately it's going to be the person that that touches that's going to save my grandchild. It won't be me. Right. Yep. It won't be me. It'll be somebody I'm sponsoring now in somebody's life they touch that my grandchild will get this way of life. And unless I keep that vision and that intention in front of me, that it has nothing to do with me or Dan. Right, yeah. I'm back into self and back into full-blown untreated alcoholism. Yeah. Nothing to do with me. Yep. Yep, like I said, self has got to die. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I don't know why this stays and stays and stays, but before I knew these steps pretty well. Yeah. Uh, I heard a man who always said, I'm praying only. That's all I do. Sort of the, sort of the, now I would say it. (laughs) Only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry it out. And how I got that was at Bud's house on my third year sobriety Thanksgiving. Bud wouldn't let people come in his house and meet his daughter. And especially me, because I was cut back then. I was a lot thinner than I am now. And I had a lot more money than I do now. And I was quite the catch. You just asked me, and I would have told you. I was quite the catch. And so he wouldn't let anybody come, especially people like me, be around his daughter who was in college. All right? And so he invited me because of what was going on in my family, and I wasn't going to have my kids and all that, at three years sober to his house for Thanksgiving. And this is where I got prayer. Hmm. This is where I got prayer. And this conversation about it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about him not about me it's not about you it's all about him i chant that many times Mm -hmm. so i can get back in the zone and so i'm sitting there at his thanksgiving table his son's on my right his daughter's on my left i'm on one end of the table he's on the other end of the table he says dennis would you say grace i said absolutely and i start praying this prayer as seen on tv right (laughs) i'm blessing this and doing this and doing that and you know how you can feel somebody staring at you you yeah. know, you get that oh, sense. Yeah. So I open one eye and I look, and both his son and his daughter and Bud are looking at me like they're in a museum. Their jaws wide open and their jaws are agape. You know? <laughs> and I go, what? He says, you don't have a clue, do you? I said, what are you talking about? You don't know how to pray, do you? I'm just praying. Here's what you're going to do for the next six months. I said, what's that? And he says, when you wake up in the morning, as soon as you wake up, I want you to look at the spot on your ceiling right above your bed. You find a spot, and you look at the same spot every morning. Hmm. I said, yeah. And he says, you're going to look up there, and you're only going to say, whatever. And you're going to get up and go. <laughs> and he says, and when you go to bed at night, right before you drift right before you drift off, you look at that same spot, and you say, thanks. Hmm. I said, don't you utter another word. I don't care if your dad has cancer. You know, I don't care what it is. Don't you utter another word, but whatever and thanks. And I did that, and it altered my life. Yeah. It Because I didn't know how much I used God for an ATM. Mm. You know, and how uh, I was always asking him to overdraw my account. Yeah. You know, 
And I had no, not a clue until I did that of what acceptance was and what peace was and, and trusting God to handle it without my divine input. And that's when I read a quote from Dune. Uh, one of my quotes that I keep around is that God looks on, um, God looks on me as a, like a consultant. He says if he wants my advice, he'll ask for it. And another one of Dune's quotes is that a zealot is someone who does what God would do if God had all the facts in the case. <laughs> so I was both. I was always determining what God's will was and forcing in the outcome. Mm. And during that six months, I let go of all that, and it hasn't returned. It, it tries. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I manage it as a function of my word. I made God a promise that I wasn't going to do that. And so here's what I do every morning. I'll just let you know my morning regimen now. This is what I do. As soon as I wake up, I go to my computer. A lot of people drop on their knees. I don't do that. I go to my computer, and I turn it on, and on my laptop, on the, on the screensaver, there's a fire truck that I took a picture of in Georgetown, Indiana. And across the grill in gold letters it says, whatever it takes. And that inspires me. And then I say the last line of the Declaration of Independence. To this I pledge my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor. And I say, God, thank you for another day's sobriety. You are everything to me. Give me knowledge of your will and the power to carry it out. And I'm going to ask you this little favor. If you would... Put somebody in my past that I can help and someone I can disappoint because I am a people pleaser and I need to be able to tell people no inside your will. Mm. And then I say out of Isaiah 6, I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm surrounded by men of unclean lips. I can't pull this off God without you. Send me your Holy Spirit. Send this coal. Touch my lips. Here I am. Send me. Please send me. And I get up and go. I say the same thing every morning and I've done it now for 29 years. Nice. And that's my that's my daily maintenance. Yeah, that's it. I have a thing that's uh, that you know, and I I have a pretty short thing I do every morning. I usually say some version of the third step prayer. But yeah, mm-hmm. I wake up in the morning and I say, "Good morning, God. I'm alcoholic. I need your help today." There you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I ask for your care and protection as I go out to do your will. And I'll say some new on me hillbilly version of the third step prayer, mm-hmm. and it changes up every time. And sometimes I have a little personal dialogue, but uh, that's the way I start my day. And it started, starts to be, you know, I don't want it to be automatic rope because I want to be making sure that I'm putting my heart into it too at the same time. But I don't know that it matters all yeah, that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to chant. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I do, and it's kind of funny. And I and I and I kind of giggle, and I think God does too when I wake up and and, and greet him like that every morning. You know, the other thing I do is kind of funny that I've added. Uh, one of the challenges that I've had uh, is that the older I get, the less money I have mm. through life showing up. And, <coughs> excuse me, so I have less cash today than I've ever had since I was in high school, but I do more with it. I, I don't I don't struggle at all. Yeah. Right? And so... This thing I've been doing probably for the last 15 years because I have this thing about my life is getting less because my funds are getting less. Hmm. And I was like, I didn't realize that when I, he can do more with a penny than I can do with a million dollars. Yeah. Right? And he does right. when I give it to him. Right. You know? And uh, so, I, when I check online, my balance in my bank account, I always say, if there's anything in there, God, give me knowledge of your will and the power to carry it out. 
and that's when I do the 11 step, sometimes three or four times a day if I'm waiting for what I think is a crucial deposit to hit or something like that because I live so close, I, I always give it to him before I check. Yeah. That way the balance is what it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's great. You know, yep. it is yeah. what it is. Yeah. And we'll work with it because you'll take care of it. It's, 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 it's so evident when you're with the guys who have done this work and that they're doing it. And I love to be like in a little group of people who get it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and then like trying to translate and kind of, and, and sort of, you know, to somebody who's new that, that, that they don't have no idea, you know, but they think they got something. They think they know something. Right. And, uh, and it's so funny to, to, Oh, it's, it's to, excruciating. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it is. It can be very painful at times. Yeah. No <laughs> doubt. I, the first time I experienced it, and I don't want to cut you off, but I was, I rented because, of, like I said, I used to have more money than I could, and so I rented three 15 passenger vans at Enterprise. This guy that used to know Bill was going to be speaking at a convention in Evansville, and we're talking probably about 1994, somewhere in there, and he was Irish, and he was the treasurer for AA International out of New York, but he was Canadian, but he'd come over from Ireland and lived in Toronto. But he was he he was there with Bill and all yeah. that in New York, knew him personally and all wow. that. And so he's talking. So I rent three vans, and that's when Serenity House was on Sunset in Clarksville before they moved. Yeah. And I get a couple long Phil Phil Jones and a few people to drive the vans that have been sober a while, and we go to this convention. And I paid for all of these convention for all these guys. They didn't pay a penny. Wow. Right. And I paid for the vans and I paid for the meals and. And so we got like, I don't know, 20, 25 guys. I did that twice in my sobriety. I took them up to Erie, Pennsylvania to hear Mickey talk one time and this. And uh, so we're sitting there, and I'm thinking, these guys are so lucky to hear this guy talk this early in their sobriety. Yeah. I look over, and they're picking their nose and drawing on papers. <laughs> and I, 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 I got my lesson. It took me a while to get to this point. Yep, it did. Yep. You know? Yep. At first, I was just livid that I had wasted all my money on these ungrateful yeah. so-and-sos, right? And then it, God gave me a wonderful gift that day, you know? Yep. And, you uh, know, and I have a little thing in me that wants to get mad at people just yeah. like you, you know, yeah. when you ain't doing it right, yeah. you know, but I, had, I, I, you know, that given offered that grace that, you know, hey, yeah. especially because I was there too, you know, and that's sure. the deal is that, uh, you know, um, my first day meeting was in 2011 and my sobriety day is 2015. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and and it took that four years of bounce. I say I bounced around the halls and walls of AA. I come into meetings pretending to be sober. Uh, I, then I finally ended up, you know, and it's kind of funny because I kind of finally ended up giving up on it. And it's kind of like that dying thing in a sense, you know. I, I just gave up. Well, I remember on it. the meeting at McDonald's. You were you there that yeah, night? Because I, I was saying, my head in my head, yeah, and I yeah. thought you were there. I was. Mike, I came over, I was and I didn't stay as long as they did. That's right. Yeah, I left you early. You were there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah, I remember that night. And Rick I remember and Jerry and yeah. Mike and you. And there and there was you could tell that there was there was something in you that was not there before. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was willingness or what, but there was something that had been added. It yeah. wasn't there before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, and it was palpable. I mean, yeah. you could. You, it was in the room. Yeah. I was pretty desperate, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and wanted something different than what I had. Mm -hmm. 
It took a lot to make that phone call. I think I remember. Oh, I, I look imagine. back at that man. I was sitting. Right. I was sitting in front of the carriage house. Just come out of a speaker meeting where a guy spoke, and I was ready to commit suicide. Uh, oh my God! And the night before, I went to a meeting out here at Seekers, and they poured all kinds of love on me. You know, kind of like you talk about the treatment guys. You know, and, and that felt really good. To, you know, that felt really good to have all these people pour that spirit, strength, and hope, and that love, and that especially hope. That's really what I remember is that I had some hope that I could actually change, that something could change in my life. And then I go to a meeting the next night, and I'm like, oh, and uh, and reach down there. And, and I sit for a while on that phone number before I could hit send. You know, and you're like, <laughs> and, you know, I look back at it, you know, I called the most, uh, the least intimidating guy I could on the list. Now, I didn't wasn't processing that then. It's yeah. where you mirror stuff now, you know. Because the first, when I first met Rick and uh, and Jerry the first time, yeah. I swear they were tolerating me. That's how, <laughs> how I felt. So small, you know. Yeah. So, Isn't that you know, so funny? Yeah. Jerry's a short little guy. Yeah, short is a little guy, you know. And I'm tall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I remember in my eyes, my memory of meeting those guys is looking up at them. Uh and they so still wild. have a place in my life, in my heart. You know, these these soldiers for this stuff like you and Rick and, and, and you know, Jerry took me under his wing and he was like a year sober, you know. He yeah. was like, kind of like that, you know. And, uh, yeah. And, and there was a little talk at one of them places and Rick said, don't worry about it. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll help Jerry along. He's got backup. No big deal. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and you know, and, but I wasn't really ready then. I had, I got some more, but I got a year of sobriety out of that. But. I put down everything thinking I was okay. You know, yep, same, old, same old record player. Yep, you know what I mean? Yep. We've got these stories, and they're all exactly the same, you know. That's, that's, I've, uh, got a, I've got a, shirt, a friend of mine, Alan Gifford, uh, met him in Branchville, several years there, take, going to church, doing AA meetings, got him into Freed from Within when he got out. He did a year there, powerful guy. They, I got him going back into RECs with me and putting back and going to prisons and telling his story. Huge impact. He moves out of FFW. Uh, he tells me I'm going to take a week off. I said, break's over. So what do you mean you're going to take a week off? Well, I just, I've been going to meetings, you know, for all these years. And I said, yeah, and it works, doesn't it? I said, what are you talking about? And he insisted on it. Three days later, he'd OD'd. Really? Yeah. Yeah, found him dead in his apartment. Yeah. And I need those stories. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens all the time. Uh yeah, if you yeah, if you got your eyes we open, we had one in here. last week that was down here at Kraft. Same thing. He was up at House of New Beginnings, doing great. You know, uh, he had been in my twenty years ago. He was in my three quarter house down there in Lanesville. Twenty five really? years ago, wow. couldn't get it. And he was up at House of New Beginnings. We reconnected, and he was doing great. Got his business back. Went to visit his son. He's dead the next morning. Wow. Had him at Kraft this last week. It's a, it's a repeating story. Yeah, it is. It is. Yep. Um, but our death is not the deal. One, it seems that this it's not a burden I carry. It's not like that. It's an opportunity that I've been given the gift, like it says, to help others. Mm-hmm. You know? And to squander that was being, a, I deserve a week off to go to Florida or to squander that. And it's not like I'm on some kind of mission. It's not that. Because I let him set the mission for the day. He sets the agenda. I make my plans, and then I turn them over to him. Yeah. 
you know, I'm okay if I'm on plan Z by the end of the day. I'm not yeah. attached to plan A. Yeah, right. Right, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and That's this, a wonderful way to yeah, live. Yeah, yeah, it is. Just go with the flow kind of thing. Yeah, right? God leads yeah. you. And, you yeah. know, and, you know, I don't have to get upset if I'm late. I don't have to get upset if somebody cancels. I don't have to get upset if there's a long line someplace or my plans get changed because my daughter all of a sudden needs to ride someplace. And just like being uh, here for this mother on Friday is part of that. Yeah. I'm not attached to Josh getting sober. I'm a, I haven't failed because he didn't stay sober. Yeah. You know? It was a setup for me to talk to this woman. Mm-hmm. Yep. To, so she could talk to her husband, and maybe he won't have to die of cancer. Yeah. You know? I don't know. But the possibility's there. Yeah. I always say, you know, I've been given a powerful gift. I yeah, say it on absolutely. I've got a powerful gift, and this book and everything else tells me I'm supposed to give this away. Yeah. It's a limitless load as long as I'm willing to give it all, the entire product away. Yep. And then to not do that, for me to not do that, is like spitting in the face, face of my higher power. If I give, he's going to give me this gift and say, hey, Dan, go do this with it. There's a Tony Evans And I'm going to say, nah, There's I'm just going to hang out. I'm going to take a break. Tony Evans quote, it's really powerful, especially during this time of political season in this what's been going on really in politics for the last 15, 18 years. But but it says, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. And when you look at it that way, we don't do this book to get sober. We do this book to die. Mm. You know, there's no in-between. There's no third selection. Either you keep like it says go on as best you can or you live your life on a spiritual basis right these two alternatives are not easy to face because there's only two yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no there's third only two. Yep. <laughs> there's only two <laughs> as much as you want to try to cheat it and maneuver it manipulate it yeah it does boil down pretty simple and you know this life feels you know this life feels pretty easy you know it really does, you yeah. know, and I have the energy to do things that I shouldn't be able to do, and I have the time to do things, and people go, how do you do so much? And I yeah. see you, too. Yeah. And they're like, how do you do so much? I don't really know. Yeah. You know, I, it doesn't, I walk a path that's laid in front of me. I don't, I, every every month my bills get paid. Mine, too. And I haven't got a clue. Yeah, me, too. <laughs> me, too. Somehow, and I don't even sweat it anymore. Yeah, you know? oh, something no, comes yeah. up, or I get a new bill, or something oh, happens. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, you know, that will work out. This will work out. It's kind of like the emergencies you get from the newcomers all the time. You know, yeah. when you're first working with them, and oh my God, they got a, so the Rick, house is on fire. You know, whatever, and they got something. It's like, hey, I thought, just Rick, do this; it'll work out. Before the fridge was closed in Corden, I was sitting there, and Rick happened to come in with Jim Vickers, and they were doing some step work, and I just happened to be there with a couple of newcomers. And he came over. I said, come on over and sit with us. So Rick and Jim came over, and I was working with these three new guys. And uh, we had our book out, and we were eating the breakfast, you know, yeah. and thing. And and he was going on about this and that and things he had to do. And I said, I want you to get something here. And, and uh, he says, what's that? I said, your emergencies are not necessarily my emergencies. And Rick spit his food out. <laughs> it, it, it impacted him, so he still uses that. Yeah. I just I want you to get that your emergencies are not necessarily my emergencies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I learned that, you know, through my people pleasing and getting rid of that. Because people pleasing is for me the last frontier. Yeah. I do the same thing. Yeah. Well, I like it. Yeah. Yep. I have to be careful where this 
service thing yeah. start because that's kind of can be tricky dance oh, in a sense, you know. It's a dance, uh, just yeah. like enabling. One day you can do the same thing and hurt somebody that you did yesterday and help somebody. Yeah, it's not about the specific action. It is like the whole context. Yeah, because the context of anything is decisive. It it sets up everything inside that context, and it the content has nothing to do with what's going on. And so that's why you've got to just be connected to God all the time. You can't afford not to have that connection because it's disaster's coming. Yeah. And that's what happens. You end up in a constant contact thing. Yeah. You know, there's a, I think there's a, there's a website or a mail thing or something out that I hear, I hear advertised, and it's constant contact. And I thought, yeah, I like that. You know, because <laughs> that's what everything I do, I get guided by that. You know, yeah. it takes some practice, it takes some time, and you have to, you know, and it's really not, you know, the first, first few years, I know I was stumbling along. I still do, and I let my sponsor guide me mostly, you know, because that's a power greater than myself for a mm-hmm. while, and that's who I absolutely you know, do what, yeah. do what he said. Sure, I get <laughs> I that. Joke around, man. I get that. I, yeah. If uh, if I'm doing anything more important, buy new underwear, I'm talking to my sponsor. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and and but we still have that, and and it turns into that we have this beautiful relationship now that where we are really friends and and a deep, real friendship beyond mm-hmm. my understanding and uh but he could still go okay dan i'm gonna put my sponsor hat on for a minute and uh and i know it's almost like it's almost like when a when a significant other gal would say dan we need to talk you know <laughs> i get that same kind of flinch but i just lean into it man because i know that uh, he's getting he's in, he's in contact too i know he is you know so what he's going to give me is some value yeah whether if i like it or not he's going to add value you know yep. whether if i like what if i like it or not don't yep. equal don't don't go into the equation. You just don't. And I try to do, you know, following his lead has done me damn well for five years. You know, damn. why would I change, right? Why? Uh, and the same thing with this other connection. You know, it's working. And I watch people that in, in my circle. That's another real anomaly thing that I yeah. struggle with is when somebody is hooked up with our group. So we have a fantastic home group of men. It's a men's group mm-hmm. that we do stuff outside you know yeah. we are really tight good uh we that's, got a little app great. that we talk on all the that's time great. you know that's great and i love it yeah. i mean i feel like i got a brotherhood around me it makes me feel real safe what spirituality know? yeah yeah and uh and i watch somebody walk out of it i'm like dude <laughs> yeah How could you're you in the get, dance yeah. man yeah. why are you going no no and uh and man it's heartbreaking but yeah. you know that's it like you said earlier you know, everybody's got their journeys and stuff, and their well, emergency or their problem is not my problem. It's not. Ne- it's never. I've never seen it said any better. Where it says that that would not keep us together, like we're now joined. The b- fact is, is that not only we have a common problem, we have discovered a common solution upon which we can all agree and join in harmonious action. And when we step out of that solution, as our solution. That's when the sickness comes back. Yep. I mean, it doesn't wait a day. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it's like, it. yeah. 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 that. Uh, that's why we do I'd say that 12-step spiritual recovery because we're using the 12-step to recover our mm-hmm. spirituality. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. And, and But i got to get all that past off of me. Yeah. Or else I ain't got a clue because, as this says, it's blocking me. Yep. It's blocking me from having what I, the life I can have. Yep. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful. You ready? Yeah. Let's call it or quits. All right, man. You know, <laughs> I love the, you, man. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. I've enjoyed right. it. I just, Have me back it, some other time, and we'll do the second half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I really do. I like to get, you know, I mean, because that's another thing, too, is that we are passing this knowledge on to the people you know. Yeah. You know, but this is a preservation thing of some knowledge. Yeah. Because so, there's a damn good 
Recovery Center here. There's a lot of powerful oh, people absolutely. doing this work, and uh, and that's that's the reason why I have people like you on here to preserve that to some level, and uh, and and distribute it more because it's like a little spinning wheel, and you know you get to throw sparks out so far, but I have a tool that allows me to throw sparks out further, and then what happens is is people you know will listen to this, mm-hmm. and then their sparks will fly out further. You know, and that's just that whole wheel God's got going on. And oh, it's, that it's great. He's spinning to get everybody together. I love you, man. I, I love, love you him. too, bud. You know, I that's something you. I could never say to people. Yeah, I know. It's so cool. Well, I could, but I didn't. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't really know it. I, I, I couldn't really. I wouldn't here's, say it. Here's my dude. definition of love today, and it works for me. When I can distinguish what's there, once I've distinguished what's there, and I'm okay that it's there, and in the same moment, I distinguish what's missing, what should be there and ought to be there, and I'm okay that it's not there. Mm. Love arises as a phenomenon. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. So I'll close this thing out. I have two things I say. Okay. You guys out there, if you're not having a blast in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. Absolutely. Because it's available. I agree with that one. Yeah. And then uh, something happy told me that I carry very close to me is the fact is that I uh, thank you. I thank everybody for Dennis and I. The thank you all for allowing us to participate in our recovery tonight. Yep. Peace out. <laughs>